you haven't been on the show in a while. Last time I looked it up, it was episode 211. It was the uh, the Last Jedi Star Wars spectacular with with Guy English and a cavalcade of other other stars. Somehow you've gone a year and a half without being on my show, but now here you are, and I've had the entire cast of ATP on consecutive episodes. Well, there you go. Well, you you you, you phrase it like I haven't been on, like it's my fault. <laughs> it's not. What? Is there, you know, I'm not the actor in that sense. I haven't been on. Is that a thing I can do? Can I just come on? Yeah, you can always just pop on. Yeah. Just keep your Skype open. Mm-hmm. Invite yourself on. Well, that's how that's how it works with Maltz, but I thought it was a special special relationship, as they say. <laughs> How's your summer going? Pretty good. It's a good, good summer this year, I think. Uh, I saw a bunch of your pictures on Instagram. Boy, your kids are getting big. All of our kids are getting big. Mm-hmm. They're monsters. Uh, my daughter is, uh, I didn't post uh, most of the pictures I have, but she's she's taller than everyone in the family now, practically. Not taller than you. No. No. Uh, Jonas is, is sprouting up. He's He has a, we were, uh, I guess, I forget if he took jeans to Marco's beach house, but uh, he had to take jeans somewhere, and it, were, it was a pair of jeans that, he, you know, in a way that, that Amy knows, but they were definitely a pair of jeans that he had just worn, like, the last week of school, and they're too short. <laughs> it was the end of July. Yeah. yeah they do that. Oh. oh, man. We've got we've got a fair amount to talk about. I want to go down uh, history lane maybe later on. Uh, just talk about Mac OS in general. It struck me today to look it up. I, I seemed to remember, and my memory served me correctly, that you ended your 15-year series of extensive Mac OS X reviews, uh, I guess ending with OS X reviews, at 10.10, I guess, because you thought that was a nice number. But now we're up to 10.15 this summer. So now we will have the, uh, the fifth one that you have not reviewed. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk about it later. Uh, other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, every once in a while I bring it up, but I like to sometimes wonder when's the last time you changed your mind, not you in particular, but one has changed their mind. I think it's a problem with our species in general that we, we make up our minds and, and we don't, we don't change them. Uh, but if you don't change your mind, what's your assumption that you're always right? You've never been wrong. If you're not changing your mind, you're not identifying the times that you're wrong, Right. Well, you may have arrived at what you think is the correct answer after a series of wrong answers. Because if you have, if you're, if you have your mind made up about something and it's because uh, the, that's the right answer, changing it would change it to the wrong answer. So, right. So change. just because you change your mind doesn't mean that you're now correct. But, but I get, I get your larger point for sure. Uh, I, I would like to revise and amend my commentary on the. Uh, Siri recorded privacy issue. Well, you should because you blew that one. I did. I, I <laughs> totally did, and it was bad timing. Where in addition to in addition to being wrong and should have been, I shouldn't have been wrong. I should have thought this through better. Then after Marco and I recorded uh, my last episode, then of course on a Friday, that's when Apple, you know, issued a statement and sort of acknowledged the scope of of what's going on which I thought looked pretty bad. Like there were some tidbits that we didn't know about before. I saw two articles. I know Matthew Panzerino had one at TechCrunch and then uh, Sam Byford had one for The Verge. And I thought this was a real eye opener. In uh, Byford's article at The Verge, 
It's like the third paragraph it says Apple did not comment on whether, in addition to pausing the program where contractors listen to Siri voice recordings, it would also stop actually saving those recordings on its servers. That's a bit weird that they're not going to say whether or not they're like somebody at Apple knows whether they're still saving the the recordings. Uh, currently, the company says it keeps recordings for six months before removing identifying information from a copy that it could keep for two years or more. Two years. Holy smokes. Right. Who the hell knew that this was going on? Well, that's kind of the, the whole thing. Like it's a, it's easy to, you know, read the, the sort of the letter of the law surrounding this and come up with uh, an explanation that makes it seem perfectly normal. But the the spirit of Apple's privacy stance uh, is an exact opposition to this very thing. The idea that you agree to something that you don't really read, there's some sort of amorphous thing that gives Apple the right to collect a bunch of information. Uh, and then, you know, they, uh, like the, the normal company, the way it works with big companies is you realize that like they're doing way more than you thought they were. You didn't read it, and not only did you not read it, but you can't even imagine the things they're doing based on the vague language of this in that agreement that you didn't read. Whereas the right. Apple one is you don't read it, and you, what you expect is to be surprised by how good their stance on privacy really is. Like, that's always the thing. People like Apple, you know, how many people have you heard just assume that Apple does something nefarious because everybody else does it? And right. you, you try to convince them, no, Apple doesn't do that. Apple doesn't actually make money from advertising. They don't actually sell your location information when you use maps to, you know, Starbucks so they can you know, present you with a coffee. Like, all these things that everyone assumes right. they do. The whole Apple thing is... In many cases, you will be surprised by the evil thing that Apple is not doing. But this particular case is the opposite. It's the way the rest of the world works. Um, they did a thing, and uh, we we're surprised by how bad it actually is. Here's a statement from a guy named Steve Jobs back in 2010 at the uh, D8 conference. That's the, I guess it was the Wall Street Journal at the time, but that was Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher's con con uh, conference where Steve Jobs used to appear in those high-backed red chairs more years than not i think um but he was talking about privacy all the way back in 2010 and he said privacy means people know what they're signing up for in plain english and repeatedly i believe people are smart and some people want to share more data than other people do ask them ask them every time make them tell you to stop asking them if they get tired of your asking them let them know precisely what you're going to do with their data um, I can't think of a single thing to criticize in that statement, and it seems like it was it's almost spot on a description of what's wrong with this series story because we still don't really know what's going on. We don't really know are these recordings that are getting reviewed all from the Hey Dingus verbal commands? Are some of them the ones that were manually initiated when you hold down the button? Uh, which devices? Uh, you had a good rant on ATP about, uh, you know, of course they want them for debugging purposes. How are they going? If, if Siri is mishearing certain commands or doing the wrong thing in response to them, there's no way that, well, I shouldn't say there's no way, but it's be very difficult to fix it without being able to listen to the recording. Um, but we don't know when they get sent. What I still don't know. I'm still not sure now that I think about it and really go deep. I'm not sure how much of this gets processed on device, period, whether they're saving the recordings on servers or not. It's unclear to me, like, how much of Siri still works when you're in airplane mode. 
Yeah, that was a question when I had an ATB, and I had just assumed that the transcription was done on device because the devices are so powerful. But uh, Marco told me that's not actually the case, and it's sending everything over the network. Uh, I don't know about everything, though. I see. I don't believe that. I don't know, but well, I, you know, the audio anyway for the purpose right. of transcription. Anyway, the, the, the whole point is this is entirely uh, opaque to the user, and the Apple experience that we all want and that we are promised is that. It's actually better than we think it is. And in this case, it's either worse than we think it is, or it's depending on how cynical you are, it's exactly the way we think it is. Like, oh, there's another big company collecting our data and uh, not telling us how much they're collecting, and we're surprised to see how creepy it is. That's how every other company works. And Apple is supposed to be the exception, and generally is the exception, which is why the PR for this is so bad. Because think of how what a hard time you'll now have explaining to somebody that really Apple doesn't do it that way. Or no, yeah. Apple can't see your messages except in unencrypted iCloud backups. Um, like the, there's, the more you have to add qualifications and the more the person you're trying to convince comes back to you and say, what about that time where they saved all our Siri recordings? And like, that's the thing that happened for sure. But in this other case, Apple is actually better than the competitors. Like, so it's this perception is uh, the, the real problem here. I mean, yeah. that's a secondary problem, I suppose. The real problem is recording all of our voices without our knowledge. Our mutual friend, Manton Reese pointed out that uh, Amazon actually does a pretty good job with this, where it's pretty easy to search the web for how do you control your Alexa stuff. You get a fact. I, I have it in the show notes, so it should make it into the final show notes here for the public. But they have a, a fact about Alexa that's pretty – I would say it's written in plain English. The font's a little small maybe, but there's a link, and they tell you how to get to a list of your recorded commands – in their app and then there's a url you can go to on the web and as long as you're signed into your amazon account you can delete recordings from a date range you can there's a there's a button to delete all of the saved recordings it's really pretty clear and then there's a a toggle for whether you want to allow your recordings to be reviewed by amazon and so you can opt out of it so that's i i that would be pretty tough. I can't really think of anything to suggest there. That that seems like the way it should be. Um, have you ever then, used those web pages, whether for Amazon or for Google? They both have similar pages. Have you ever gone to them for your own devices? I did. I did it today in preparation for the show. And there was <laughs> a recording of my son telling Alexa to shut the F up. So I've, I've gone to these pages as well in the, in the past. And the... the the strange thing about uh, pages like this is that the experience of going to a web page and scrolling through uh, like all of your past recordings and like being able to play them sort of viscerally makes you understand the fact that things you say in your house have been transferred to a server somewhere and yeah. are being stored there. You can read those words and understand the agreement and it's written in plain English. Like, yeah, of course, that's the way it works. But actually seeing the web page and actually being able to scroll to three months ago and play a thing that somebody said when you weren't in the house, you feel creepy doing it because now you're basically yeah. eavesdropping on people in your own house hearing how right. they use device, especially if it was an accidental activation or something. Right. And in, in many ways, I feel like the existence of that page really hammers home exactly how invasive and creepy this is. Despite the fact that, as you noted, this is a good thing to have if they're going to store them at all, give the user visibility, give the user control or whatever. But I think right. what most people would prefer is as soon as you've done what I asked for you, forget it. Don't record my information anywhere. Delete it if you have it saved anywhere or just don't save it in the first place. 
that's what everybody wants until and unless they're having a problem or whatever, which gets into what I was saying in ATP, which is at the point where you're experiencing malfunction, that's the point where people would willingly opt in more often than not to getting their thing recorded just so Apple can fix it. But every other time, what would make people the most comfortable is I am not recorded and stored anywhere ever unless I explicitly ask for it. Yeah, and the counterexample, uh, which I, I love the feature. I forget how many handful of years old now at this point but the voicemail transcription feature uh in ios has a uh has a little thing where it'll say was this transcription useful or not useful and there are links and then you can tap useful and then you get a dialog box instantly opens up right away which is nice uh, help improve transcriptions. Would you like to submit this voicemail to Apple to improve transcription accuracy? Recordings will only be used to improve the quality of speech recognition in Apple products. Do not submit recordings if you believe the speaker would be uncomfortable with you submitting the content to Apple. Cancel or submit. Or if it's Perf illegal in your state. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they could mention that. But I'm not sure, though. If you do, If you leave a voicemail... It's like a two-party consent thing. I don't know. Do they know they're being recorded? I have. I don't know how this works, legally speaking. But the, the wording is is nice. But I don't. I don't understand how the legalities work there. Um, yeah, I, I saw you post that to the notes document, yeah. and the the spam uh, voicemail that you have transcribed there. I've received that same voicemail. Yeah, something about my excellent credit history, and I'm mm -hmm. eligible for blah blah blah. It's like it's vaguely broken English. Uh, yeah. Some kind of credit. Come on, it's like if you're going to send this mail to literally millions of people. Can you spend ten minutes getting the grammar right? They're still going with the trick where they have uh, the same area code as I do, mm -hmm. and the same first three digits, as though it's you know, as though that makes it more likely. <laughs> You know, that it's somebody I know. Yeah, I, I have a brutal one. Uh, um, my caller ID, you know, we tend to get the same, what I, what I think are the same spammers calling all the time, and you can see from the caller ID. And for the longest time, caller ID of Boston College was calling. And I, I, I got to the point where after they called three days in a row where I answered it, ready to tell them to take me off their list or go away or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever things I could possibly do. And I answered it, and there was nobody there. Like, just nothing. <laughs> Like I could, I don't think they hung up, but there was no one. It's right. like hello, hello, nobody there, and so they kept calling. They'd call every single day, and I'd pick up every single time, and there was nobody there. I'm like this is the worst scam ever. Like you have to, you have to pick up. You have to tell me something. Like how can I give you all my money if you don't say anything? Eventually, someone picked up, and I told them to take me off the list or whatever. And I also uh, started blocking the number, and which is a thing that I can do with my phone service. Like actually, this is not this is my landline phone. I actually have a landline. Um, I started blocking the number, and then I realized that. They were called day after day, and every time they call, the caller ID says Boston College, but every time they call, it's a different number. Because I, mm. I, best, I bet a ton of numbers show up as Boston College, and they're just going through all, you know, they're faking their caller ID through all these numbers. And so now I'm just resigned to the fact that every day someone will call my house with the caller ID Boston College, and I have to just not answer it. What is, I, I can't understand the hit rate on these things. Like, I, I don't even understand because sometimes I'll answer because I'm bored and I just want to take some of their time and I feel like I'm doing a service for humanity, even though I'm probably doing myself a disservice by, by marking my number as actual number. Um, but I get so many of these calls anyway. It doesn't really seem uh, – Plus you're lonely. Yes, exactly. Uh, I just want to talk to somebody. But I'll, I'll, I'll start talking to them and it's like I don't even know what they're trying to sell me. And that's like they can't even make it clear. It's yeah. like – do you get the ones in Chinese? I get a lot of calls in oh, Chinese. Oh, I do too. And I'm like, yeah. you're just not getting anywhere with this. Yeah. 
Yeah. I forget what the transcriptions look like for those. They're they're usually pretty, I think it just uh, opts out. I think it just yeah, on the iPhone it's tran- like you know, did not transcribe or could not transcribe. Right. Transcription not available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. But anyway, I, I've I've I'm I've gone from ambivalent about this story uh to upset. To I you know, I, I would like to know exactly how this happened. And I think, and because one of the weird things that you and I both know is that Apple has a privacy team, like in the way that uh, I would, you would think most companies today should have one, but in a way that like certain things have to go through legal, you got to send it through the legal department. When they do new features, they, they have a privacy team that new features have to be run through and that these are people, uh, I actually just met a couple of them at WWDC who are shockingly super smart but also have that mindset where they totally you know it's like being a a white hat hacker like they know how to think like well here's how i would abuse this uh, and close stuff up it, i my only theory is that siri has such a weird history you know where it started as this third-party company and then they slowly started integrating it and it's it's always been you know partially on device partially in the servers and that somehow the whole thing just sort of slipped through the cracks and that this never really got looked at in in terms of the privacy implications because it's so far over the line i mean that could be true but my assumption has been that uh, one of those things that we all don't read explicitly said that apple's going to do this and we all agreed to it like that doesn't to my point before it doesn't actually make it better like right. I think, I think Apple may be surprised to learn that oh, that thing that we put in the agreement that nobody read, uh, that you all agreed to. Like that's they're not going to hide behind that like so many other companies. Like well, you agreed to it or whatever. Because Apple, I think, understands that it doesn't really matter whether we click the accept thing on the thing that we didn't read. What matters is how we feel about it as customers. And I think in this case, as in many cases, uh, we are all surprised at how surprised Apple is <laughs> that we don't like something like. If we pose this hypothetical to anybody who follows Apple or is an Apple fan, we'd say, yeah, people aren't going to like that. But maybe within Apple, it was like, well, everyone agreed to this and we've been doing it for years and no one's complained. So I guess it's a thing that's OK. And the, the privacy team would be like, look, we outlined it in plain English. And if you had read the thing, it would say what we did. And we believe in your privacy. And here's what we do. And we anonymize it. And we only keep it for two years. And that's better than the industry standard. Like there's a whole bunch of things that you can say to yourself inside Apple to convince yourself that this is actually OK. Lots of the evidence out in the world can be used to support the idea that Apple's customers are okay with this thing that's happening. When in reality, Apple's customers, A, weren't aware that it was happening. B, once they became aware, are not okay with it. Yeah, definitely. And well, I saw one theory that maybe somehow inside Apple, they they chalked it up to the uh, – like when you first set up a new device or I guess every time you do a major software like – OS update, you go through this, the onboarding process. Uh, and there's a question like settings and or diagnostic info or something like that. Will you help Apple out by setting, sending diagnostic information? Um, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm guessing that there's a, well, actually, I don't know if they would have a link to the web, a web page where they explain more because in that, in that onboarding process, you can't really jump to Safari cause you're not set up yet. You have a thing of like email it to me. If it's yeah, like, it used maybe. to be like printed out on your Mac, but now it's like right. email it to me. You know, so most people just look at the high level diagnostics, the 
two sentence summary of it and they either hit the button that says, okay, yeah. I'll send it. Or they hit the little not button underneath. That is yeah. a little, uh, diabolically designed, like, no, you don't want this one. You want to send us the diagnostics, but to somehow they thought that the, that diagnostics thing, and maybe legally, maybe from a legal sense, it does, but mm -hmm. it certainly yeah, is. Uh, yeah. And, and the thing is, I, I do wonder what, uh, you know, sort of a non-tech enthusiast conception of diagnostics is, but I think within the tech world, we're all thinking crash reports, right? That's that's right. kind of what we're thinking. Like, yeah, right. if there's some problem with the program or if you want to know, like, how many times I launch it or how many times a feature is used, that's what I'm opting into when I say diagnostics. But even tech nerds would be surprised. We say, oh, and also everything you say to Siri, we, we have the right to send and store for two years. That is not in our mental model of what that button means to us. Yeah. And it is funny to think about the fact, you know, so they apparently strip your iCloud ID from these recordings after and, six months. Right. Yeah. That's what that that and that to me is a little mm, that's not what I expected. Mm -hmm. uh, so after six months, they strip it. Um, it, it. But it's it's theoretically possible that, you know, like your example was, uh, I think, James Earl Jones, who Morgan was your Freeman, example? Morgan close. Freeman. Close. Well, it, someone, e either with, someone with a voice that you would recognize saying words that you would recognize right. as being uh, relevant. Again, Morgan Freeman talking to Steven Spielberg about a new movie. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's not outlandish to think that somebody could could have one scooped up or it was, you know, easily identified. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, especially if they have human they have humans listening to this and there's this big fleet of humans. One of the humans is going to hear the Morgan Freeman thing and is going to recognize Morgan Freeman's voice. And this, but, you know, like it's also, also insider tradings. If you recognize like a CEO talking about financial things like and I know it's like all oh, the employees agreed to blah, 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 blah. Like these this is where this stuff happens. Having this information at all is a liability. And then having this information pass through the hands of like your lowest paid, least well-treated employees is not great. No, no, it's not what you want. Uh, I, I've, I, even I've been recognized by my voice. I was, uh, we were at Disney world last month and, uh, we were waiting for dinner and I was ordering a drink at the bar and my wife noticed at first that this guy next to me just suddenly shot his head over, like got hit by a thunderclap. And he was like, are you John Gruber? And, uh, that doesn't really – that happens to me at WWDC. I'm sure it happens to you at WWDC. It does not happen to me at Disney World. Well, to be fair, you're at Disney a lot. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's a law of averages. <laughs> but like he even said, he said it wasn't that I recognized you. It was that I recognized your voice. Yeah, that's, that's the way it works with podcasting, which is as I prefer it, I suppose, because then you can just keep your mouth shut and be anonymous. Right. <laughs> Faces made for radio, as they say back on Car Talk. Oh, definitely. Um. Uh, I guess we're done with this story, though. Got the Alexa thing. Got the permission for the voicemail. Boy, pasting a screenshot into a note really takes up a lot of space. Yeah, I can't even see that note on my Mac Pro here because it's running Al Cap and I can't see shared notes. <laughs> I can see it on my iPhone. So. <laughs> All right, let me take a break here and thank our first sponsor. Let's see who the lucky winner is, who gets to go first. Uh, why don't we talk about a way? I love away. I just got done taking my away suitcase on a trip. It's still good as new. Uh, they've, they make suitcases. They're top-notch, really, really great. All of them are made from either a lightweight, durable German polycarbonate, which is to say a very fancy, very nice plastic, or 
an aluminum alloy. I've got the uh, polycarbonate one because mine is so old that they only had the carbonate ones when I got mine. And uh, I have no reason to replace it because it's still as good as new. They've considered all types of travelers, and they make their carry-on in two sizes with an optional ejectable battery, which I love, absolutely love. And when they say ejectable, it is super ejectable. You just click down on it, pops up. That's important now because now when if, you, if, if you're traveling on an airplane and they make you check your bag uh, rather than putting it in the overhead, you have to remove lithium-ion batteries. Couldn't be easier. Super great. I love having that battery right there on my suitcase. And all you have to do, keep a lightning cable handy. Although I guess you need two cables now if you want to charge an iPad. We, we all need a lot of cables. But there we go. Plug it right in your suitcase. Every single seat at the airport is now a seat with a charging port for you. I love it. Four 360 spinner wheels guaranteed for a smooth ride. My wheels still absolutely fantastically smooth. Years old. Lots of trips. Uh, a really clever internal compression system that lets you pack more, keeps your shirts from getting all wrinkled up. Uh, I, I, I go everywhere. I can't remember the last time I went anywhere without my away carry-on. I really like it. It's a great suitcase. Uh, you can save 20 bucks off your suitcase by going to awaytravel.com. That's their URL, awaytravel.com slash talkshow20. Talk show, because this is the talk show. 20 because you can save 20 bucks and just remember that promo code talk show 20 during checkout so go to awaytravel.com slash talk show uh and my thanks to away for continuing to support the show i think all of our suitcases are now away suitcases <laughs> you know what we had a funny thing when we went to see marco and we got off the ferry a guy took mine and I, you know, because he had an away suitcase as well. Many suitcases look alike, so check many, your luggage tags. Many suitcases look alike. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, and it's funny because I realized that I don't even know how many other people have an away carry-on because I, I can't remember the last time I had to gate check it. I all you know because I, I have pretty good status on American Airlines and I always fly on American Airlines, so I don't get like a bad uh, boarding group where they might take my suitcase away and stick it underneath the belly of the plane i'm sticking it right over my seat so it's never really out of arm's length but that would have been that would have been bad bad yeah i have all my drugs and stuff in my (laughs) my suitcase uh hey i know you're uh martin scorsese fan do you see the trailer for the irishman i am avoiding uh any media related not not i mean uh Todd Vizier is doing full media blackout for it, but although he was, I think he's working on the movie now, so I don't know how that works. Mm. Anyway, I'm mostly, I'm, I'm mostly avoiding like all trailers now, uh, yeah. and so like if I'm interested in a movie, I avoid the trailer because I don't want to be spoiled. And if I'm not interested in the movie, I avoid the trailer because why bother? So right. the answer is no. But you're aware of the basic premise. I am that, not aware of the basic premise. I'm oh, aware of almost nothing about this movie other than the director. So I just. Gonna, you don't even know the cast? Uh, De Niro, maybe? I don't think I know anything about the cast. Can I spoil the cast? Sure, go for it. It's the whole gang is back together. It's got De Niro. It's got Joe Pesci. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've added Al Pacino. Oh, but they're all old men now. It's going to be sad. Yeah, well, well, this is the thing. They've, they've young, young eyes, 
Robert De Niro. Oh, all right then. All right, <laughs> That's that, what that I wanted explain to explain Todd Vaziri's involvement. I know that he right. does that. There is some serious Todd Vaziri <laughs> action going on. <laughs> I will say the trailer is excellent. It is not very spoilery. Shocker, because you'd think, you know, somebody like Martin Scorsese is going to keep control of his do, trailer. Do you think and, the directors, even of that stature, have control of the trailers? What I've heard is that no matter who you are, hmm. you get no say in your trailer. But I don't know how true that is. I don't know about that. I, if anybody does, I would think. I would. Yeah, think, sure. Uh, no, you would think, but like I, I was, I always think about. I think about like Stephen King having control over his book covers, right? Right. And, and right. I, my again, my vague knowledge of this is that even Stephen King has to just deal with what the publisher wants to put on the cover. Right. Right. Uh, right. The inside of his books is he has control over. They're very consistent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all set, typeset in uh, Garamond number yeah, three. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you get big enough, you can insist on whatever you want to insist on. But I think just being conditioned by years and years of being in the industry, you could become accustomed to the idea that the director doesn't have control yeah. of the trailer and the author doesn't have control over the cover. Yeah. From what I saw in the trailer, uh, the the way that they've made Robert De Niro look younger than he really is, is pretty astounding. It is outside the uncanny valley. Now, it's a trailer, so maybe they're cherry-picking the shots, you know, with dark lighting and, you know, cherry-picking the best spots. But uh, that's pretty interesting, and I don't know how I feel about it, though. Like, in in some sense, like, if we keep giving... (laughs) If we keep giving the role <laughs> of a mid forties gangster to Robert De Niro, when when does you know when does the younger when does our generation get to step right. into these soon, roles? Soon it'll just be his voice on a completely uh, computer animated figure. Like the, the worst thing about De Niro and these other actors is we have so much footage of them at that age. Like it's yeah. not like we don't know what they look like, right? It's, it's, you know, as opposed to like aging Captain America, we don't know what Chris Evans, Chris Evans is right. going to look like when he's old, but we know what you know thirty forty year old Robert De Niro look like. We're very yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to hear after this comes out, talk to pick Todd Viziri's ear about it and find out how much work and what what source material they use to get to yeah, get and, the and exactly how much they replace. That's that's the right. whole thing. So it's always like, oh, but just do a nip and a tuck, and it's like, no, we're just going to erase your head and replace it with our computer head. Well, it's a it's a Netflix movie, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. But they're they're doing the. Uh, I guess it's that whole thing Spielberg was talking about back at the Oscars in March where, you know, for whatever reason, Spielberg thinks that any movie up for Oscar consideration has to have been in a theater. Of course he does. Uh, which, you know, see, you know, I, I, I like tradition as much as the next uh-huh. guy. I don't really see... I don't really see that as as a requirement. A movie no. is a movie. You yep. know. I, I like seeing a movie in a theater. I like a big screen. I like a good loud sound system. You know, you, when you go to the movies, I don't go much anymore. I got to say, but I do like going to see a blockbuster in a movie theater. I like the way that I don't have to worry about, you know, waking up my wife or something because I have the volume too loud. But if oh. I don't put the volume up loud, then I can't hear what they're saying. Mm-hmm. But then. When the action, you know, when the Hulk starts throwing things against the wall, all of a sudden the volume you had set for dialogue is no longer appropriate. You know, you yeah. Plus the, the the recent and recent years innovation that I feel like has given a big boost to my desire to go to movie theaters. Reserve seating everywhere. It's the best thing ever. Do you have that at all your local theaters? I can't remember the last time I went to a movie without reserved seating. No, I won't. I won't go to a movie without yeah. reserved seating. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. What a what a 
Why did it take so long? Com- computers, because it's such a, it's like a bookkeeping hassle, mm. and mm. Uh, you know, it's not like we didn't have the computers to do it, but someone needed to say, let's try this. Like once the technology was there, it was just a matter of someone being willing to use technology, and once the first person was willing to use it and probably saw what it did to attendance, then it just spreads like wildfire. That's yeah. why, because before. Like, what would the logistics be of just how many shows a day and how many seats and picking what your seats are and, and sort of knowing when the seat's taken but someone else took it? Like, it would cost so much money to run that without without the web, essentially. And like a play, plays have always had reserved seatings. But a play, typically, it, it, the theater only has one showroom. It yeah. is the theater. And I, I, I think most plays are typically one show a day, maybe two. And not $7 a ticket. And not seven dollars a ticket or whatever so, whatever current right. ticket prices right. are. 13. I think they're around eleven or twelve yeah. bucks. Thirteen. All right. So I guess it is the computerization. The other thing that's really nice about a modern theater is the uh, the the reclining seats. Oh yeah, yeah. They're sort stadium, of like stadium a, seating, reclining seats, and uh, I've even almost but not quite come around to those ones that give you the food in the theater because my wife really likes. Uh, mm. Our local theater that gives food. I never get food in a the theater. I don't want other people to get food in the theater. But I have to say that since it makes my wife and sometimes my kids happy, I like that because it makes them more willing to go to the movie because you can convince them, oh, we'll go to the one with the food and you can get, you know, junky French fries that you like. Uh, and the second thing is they somehow manage, maybe it's because of stupid 30 minutes of trails in front of everything, to get you the food before the movie starts and not deal with anything related to it until the movie is over. And for yeah, the most part, people are nice about not making chewy, noisy things. The only bad thing is it's a little bit of extra lighting so that people can see the menus, which I wish they would yeah. turn off. So I would, I do not prefer it and would avoid it if possible. But I do like the idea that other people in my family like it because it gets them to go to the movies. Yeah, uh, yeah I totally agree. I, the first time – I know the, the famous chain is the Alamo Draft House, And I know that they're – I think they're out of Texas now. I think they're spreading nationwide. But when uh, – for a couple of years when I lived up in Massachusetts, we had a place, I think it was called Chunkies. And it was weird. It was like when this was a novelty and it didn't really have theater seating. What they had were the passenger seats from Lincoln Continentals, like mid-80s Lincoln Continentals. And they just bought a whole bunch of passenger bucket seats from like 80s Lincolns, put them on wheels. And then you you, you didn't really... I have to say I didn't really like that because I want to be squared up and I want to be in the center. But it was a way that you could kind of wheel your seat around. It was a comfy chair. That's but weird. It, yeah, it was definitely weird. It well, was a little and, weird. And by modern theater standards, too, the seat out of even a Lincoln Continental is way smaller than the current gigantic recliners that they have in yeah. these theaters. There's enough room for like two normal-sized people to sit on each one of these things. <laughs> yeah, the old old school movie theaters. I guess and that was the other thing, too, is that they've raised the prices enough and attendance is down and they go for blockbusters. But I guess in the old days, you know, throughout you know decades ago, they were really just trying to pack people in like sardines. Yep. Little tiny hard seats with, if you're lucky, some kind of dingy fabric on it. Yeah. Rub, kind rubbing of, elbows with the public, literally. Yeah. And if you rub the seat the wrong way, it kind of like gave you like a, you know, like a, what would you call that? You know what I mean? Like it's like the velvet. And if you rub it the yeah, right the way, it single, feels single, smooth. Single directional velvet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to that. Although I don't know if I'll see it in the theater. Figured I'd run it by you. See what the, you the Netflix about. thing. If it's Netflix, is it only on Netflix? Do you have the option to see it in the theater? Oh yeah. So they're going to. They are going to do a, a quote unquote limited run, which I take to mean maybe New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that 
New York, LA, and Philadelphia, obviously. Yeah, I, I, I somehow <laughs> doubt it. I think I'll wait for it to come out on Netflix, but I'm looking forward to it. I think it's kind of interesting. Are they going to do same day on Netflix? No, I don't know. That's I feel weird. like that's a super Netflixy thing to do. Drop the whole season at once and right. put it on Netflix the same day it opens in theaters. Yeah. What do you think about Netflix's distribution of, you know, like, here, here's season three of, of Stranger Things. Here's the whole thing. Here's eight episodes. I like it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, there's a place for both kinds of distribution, so I'm not in favor of uh, one completely replacing the other. But I like having it as an option because, you know, I don't – I think because there's so much – now I feel a lot less of the pressure to watch a show that comes out immediately. Otherwise, I'll get spoiled by my friends because now we're all in the same boat where it's like no one has time to binge watch Stranger Things season three when it comes out just because it comes out because there's a million shows like that. And who has that kind of time? So we all do watch it at our leisure, but I watch things in a bursty manner. Sometimes it's like no episodes for several days and then, and then I do four episodes in a day. And that's I like having that available to me. It's, you know, it sort of lets me go my own pace. I thought about it a lot with Stranger Things this season. I didn't do super bingey. Like sometimes I just get in a real rut where I'm staying up real late and I'll watch like three or four episodes of a thing. And I, I mostly watch like one a night, maybe two. It used to bother me because Stranger Things in particular has cliffhanger episode endings. And it just feels to me like, this is supposed to make you wait a week. You're supposed to wait a week to find out what the hell just happened. But then I was thinking about it and you know, you brought up Stephen King. Like it's, they even call them chapters on stranger things. Like it's no different than a novel where lots, lots of thriller writers will put a cliffhanger ending at the end of a chapter and you make the decision. Do you find out what happened or do you go to bed? Yeah, and and you know the people making these shows are not surprised by how they're being distributed. Like they they can they should right. be able to tailor the show so that it works in in the format that it's that it's you know being presented. Which is why you know Stranger Things is a great example. Uh, and we've talked about this uh, before on Twitter and with our friend Todd. The idea of opening credits uh, shows mm. that are made in an era of streaming services where there is a potential for you to watch episode after episode have to decide whether they're going to try to have a big, long, luxurious intro and then allow people to hit the skip intro button in their streaming service of choice, or whether they're going to try to have a really tight but entertaining intro that people will actually watch instead of hitting the skip intro. I think season one of Stranger Things had a fairly long intro sequence by hmm. sort of normal standards, but it was so artfully done that I watched that intro for probably more than half of the episodes of Stranger Things because it was so good. And so I, wa I watched the intro to most shows. I watched the Game of Thrones uh, intro not, every not week. Not House of Cards, though. That was like 10 minutes long. Uh, I would watch it. Well, watch I, it, or I, would you allow it to play while you, yeah, you know, pick like, boogers? Yeah, go, go get a beverage and pick some boogers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, I, I, guess, I guess now that I think about it, I skipped, I skipped sometimes. Because that, that one was, was really real. long. Like, you know, and, and it wasn't, and the thing is, it didn't grab you. Like, the point is that it's possible to. You know, the, the, all of these television shows, movies, whatever, should be made with the knowledge of how they're going to be viewed and distributed. And so you can work within that framework to do very interesting things. I'm not a fan. The one thing that Netflix really bothers me is I don't like the race at the end of the episode to quick get the remote and let the music play. You know, like one of the cool things, you know, lots of shows do it, but they'll pick at the end of an episode instead of having a theme song 
like you do at the opening credits, you you play a unique song picked just for this episode mm-hmm. to sort of set the mood and let yourself ease out of the show. And the, and the, the filmmakers behind the shows carefully picked and licensed these songs. I want to hear it. I want to hear the, the, the music sometimes. And with Netflix, you're <laughs> – and it's like – Hey, Netflix, I'm dealing with an Apple TV remote here. <laughs> you got to give me some extra time. <laughs> and the thing is, the UI of these streaming services constitutes a form of spoilers in many cases because right. if you don't see the little prompt for the next episode, you know there's a post-credit sequence. Or you know there's an intro-credit sequence. Oh, right, right? That, right. That's happened to me many times where right. the thing doesn't pop up and I'm like, oh. Oh, there's more to it. And I would rather have experienced that organically or not at all. Right. Like, I feel like the, the best kind of sort of post-credits or mid-credit sequence are the kind where you discover it on your own or you don't, right? If you no. just turned off the TV, then you don't get to see it. But if you did leave it running, it's a pleasant surprise. Like, that's the best form of it. Unlike, you know, things like the Marvel movies where we've all been conditioned as a society to sit through 10 years of credits because we know there will be post-credit sequences, possible multiple ones. TV right. shows... You never know. Sometimes there'll just be one at the end of a series or end of a season, or a show will never do one and then just do one randomly in the middle. I know a lot of people who watched, I mean, I don't, okay. Some people watch a show that I really enjoy that I don't want to spoil that did have a sort of mid-credits, post-credits sequence that lots of people just never saw. And it really changes the, the entire plot of the show because it's the kind of, you know, twist on a twist ending thing. And I've talked to people, and they're like, I watched that whole show, uh, and then I heard you talk about it, and I had no idea what you're talking about. And then I went back and watched it, and I was like, oh, that's that's perfect, because you can watch the show and be satisfied with it when just turn it off when the credits start to roll. But if you kept watching, you got a little bonus. Stranger Things, I thought season three was pretty great. I thought it was my probably my favorite season. And I, I, that says a lot because uh, I liked the first season a lot. I thought second season was a little eh. And then usually the you know by the third season it's it's fading away. You usually don't think about that, but I thought it was great, and I thought that they, to my eyes and my recollection, they nailed mid eighties mall culture absolutely perfectly. Like I don't know how much money they spent to recreate an eighties mall, but it was money well spent because it was it was perfect. Did you see that the, the, what they used was one of those abandoned eighties malls? Like an actual no. abandoned 80s malls, and then they, they dressed it up, which is, which is probably the only way you could do it uh, short of CG. So that, right. that aspect of it was great. But I, for me, season one is still far and away the best season of Stranger Things by like miles and miles. Season two, I have fond memories of, but, don't, but, but that's only the bits I can remember. And it was weird, <laughs> you know, but fine. Season three, it felt like it was very straightforward, and it felt like a little bit like they were going through the motions, and I think they were a little bit confused about what to do with these characters. This is the problem of having any show with kids as the stars. They start to yeah. grow up, and they get awkward, and the show has to decide when to start treating them like adults and when to keep treating them like kids, and I feel like Stranger Things is in that awkward phase. I enjoyed it. I just feel like season one is just so much better. It was just lightning in a bottle because it was the kids at the, at the right age, and it's a show, and you know some sort of nostalgia and throwback and homages to things that we're familiar with just at the right time and it was i I was riveted for season one and season two and three and it's just a show that i'm watching and enjoying and somehow an original take on the supernatural you know it was something Uh, i'm not not sure how original is but it's like it's quentin tarantino original where you see all the influences but then they are channeled through this other creative person and it makes them more than what they were yes that's a good way to put it right there's nothing new under the sun 
making super yeah, natural that's, that's what we but, always want but some people are more open about it like we everyone is always remixing everything they've experienced into their own creations but sometimes what comes out is something that, that isn't immediately recognizable as a combination of the source materials but then there are people again like tarantino who you so clearly see their influences you clearly see what they love right. and they make this new great thing but you can draw direct lines back to all this other stuff it's it's you know it's very clear unlike other art where you you would never know they were inspired by something until you saw like an interview with the director Right. Did they ever figure out? Did, did they ever tell us what the hell happened to that Barb? Uh yeah, she's dead. Oh, she's dead. That's Spoiler alert. Well, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Barb. Uh, let me take a break here. Thank our good friends at Eero. E E R O. Eero blankets your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi, eliminating poor coverage, dead spots, and buffering. You'll have a consistently strong signal wherever you need it. Not just one router somewhere by your TV and you hope it gets all the way upstairs to your bedroom because that's where you're also streaming lots of video on your iPad or whatever. Uh, what, what they use is they use multiple little devices and they're small. They're very good looking. The ones that plug into the wall, they call them the beacons. They have a nightlight so they can shine down on the floor. If you don't want the nightlight, use the app, turn it off. Easy as pie. Couldn't be easier. Uh, and the whole thing, you set it up. It is so easy to set up. It is so uncomplicated. So requires no networking expertise to get a network with multiple devices that blankets your whole home with coverage. And you do it all through their app, which is a really, really good app. Um, I I have the feature on. I like it. I don't know why, but I like the. Uh, I get notifications when a new device joins my network. Sometimes my kid will bring a friend over. And it'll say new Apple devices on the network. I like knowing that. Uh, really don't know why, but it's there if you want it. You don't want it, you can turn it off. I'm talking to you over an Eero network right now. It is a great product. I use it myself, whole house right here. It's covered with Eero networking. Where do you go to find out more? Go to Eero.com slash the talk show and enter code the talk show at checkout and you get free overnight shipping with your order that's eero.com slash the talk show with the code for the checkout the talk show and you get your eero delivered with free overnight shipping you got to use that url though to receive the offer eero.com slash the talk show their website will help you pick just how many devices you need based on the size of your house how many floors you have etc etc couldn't be easier my thanks to eero for their continuing support of the show and for the uh, the wi-fi i'm using right now uh, let's get into it because who knows how long it's going to go. But do you do you miss writing your OS ten reviews, Mac OS ten reviews? A little bit. I, did you, what was the average? You know, like offhand, what was the average word count? Uh, I think there was like maybe uh, it was it was lumpy, maybe thirty k, something mm. like that. It's it, it it's closer to a they were closer to short books than long articles. Yeah, I mean, I, sold, I sold them as ebooks for ebooks for the past uh for the final 3 or 4 or 5 I don't even remember how many. Um but yeah, no, I, I when I think about it I remember in the writing process I don't I think about how how long it would take. It's kind of like doing a legal copy where a contract is a certain length but every sentence has to be vetted. Right, like when you're doing right. technical writing, it's just I, I have sort of like school forgot my homework, forgot I was signed up for a class type of uh, stress dreams 
about right. trying to imagine, you know, you've written something that's like 20, 30, 40,000 words. And every single line of it is a like that's not an opinion is a statement of fact about a product that that isn't released yet and that is subject to change at any time <laughs> and that you have to publish on the day the thing is released and every single fact in it needs to be true of the version that they release i still have like stress dreams and waking sort of jolts about that like it was just it would take so long to do uh, to just to get through like two paragraphs of text because every single sentence made assertions and and even the opinions were based on those assertions so you can't even leave the opinions because you're like this thing is terrible and that ends up they change that thing to work a different way now that opinion has to be removed or revised and you have to decide what you think about it and write a new thing about it i guess i don't miss that part (laughs) persnickety things like file paths and is there a tilde in front of the library or is it the root level library and you got to get every single Every single bit of that, oh, exactly, like right? much much more austere things than that, like the screenshots right. alone, because oh, right, they change stuff <laughs> around. That's they, what I think. That's what drove you over the edge was the, where the screenshots. I mean, the, the screenshots towards the end, the screenshots were the part that I enjoyed the most because I really started to just like insist on like my my standards for screenshots just got higher and higher to the point where nobody reading the article appreciated the extra level of effort I was putting into. Like, this is a point of diminishing returns was like three reviews before i ended and i just kept going like i wanted the the screenshots to be artful i wanted the content to be interesting i wanted there never to be any blurred or blocked out things in them (laughs) but of course i didn't want to reveal any actual personal information i wanted them to be composed well i wanted them to show multiple things in a single screenshot i needed them to be read in a resolution like it was just it went on and on and on uh and that's that's one of the parts that I threw myself into towards the end. Uh, but yeah, that was a nightmare, but no, just like even the technical stuff about exactly how something works under the covers and what this command does and what technology they're using underlying this and what this data structure looks like. And they, you know, they changed that stuff and you'd have to like, every time a new build came out, you'd have to go through and revet all of your past work and then continue writing. If you were still in the process of writing it, it's just exhausting. Does it bother you? It bothers me. I feel like they should have stuck with a name. It bothers me that they went from Mac OS X to OS X now to Mac OS because it makes it hard to... To talk about it in retrospect, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, it, it, when it was all Mac OS X, you could say Mac OS 10.4 and Mac OS 10.5 and you didn't have to mix it. And what do you... You know, I, I'm still... I think I'm actually kind of inconsistent on it. Like, what do I do now when I refer back to a 10-year-old version? Do I call it Mac OS X or do I use Mac OS for consistency with the, the current uh, version? You got to call it what it was named at the time. Like, there, there is that, I forget which one, I think it was Lion or whatever was the in-betweeny one where Apple was pushing, trying to say OS X without the Mac, but they didn't really commit to it except for like retroactively. Right. So there was one that was in the middle, but every other one is fairly definitively has an, a product name. When you're referring to a specific version, it's easy. Use the name that it was called when it was released. If you're referring to, like, the first 15 versions of the Mac operating system, I would go to, like, the Mac operating system or some other generic term that is descriptive but does not pin it down. And when I speak about it, I I try to do that, but then if I need to refer to the whole group as an actual product name, I usually go Mac OS X or OS X. Because there's still, it still seems like in a in a non marketing sense, at a technical sense, that's still the canonical name. Like there's some command line utilities, like uh, 
what is there like sysinfo or sysversion? There's things you can type at the command line that'll tell you like what version of the operating system you're running, and it still calls itself macOS 10. There's oh. still places where it's where it still says that. They'll hunt down those strings eventually. Yeah. No. The, the main thing that I'm disappointed about the naming is the. I enjoy the consistency of the new naming scheme, but I hate it. <laughs> I don't like the actual naming scheme, the lowercase, then going to uppercase. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I find that aesthetically unpleasing. It's almost as bad as what you do, which is making up your own naming scheme that is like the Apple's naming scheme, but changed in a way that you find more pleasing. I, it's because I don't play games with the capitals. But you do. I, you're, playing, you're playing your own game. You're like, I've well, come up with my own naming scheme. Good. I, but I firmly believe that for the most part... Uh, you don't one doesn't spelling is letters not case and case is a style that you put on it so in the same way that i wouldn't follow their direction if they said we always italicize the word mac os always it's always italics uh, i would i wouldn't well, italicize you've gone it. to a third level you you got the letters you've got capitalization and now you're saying like font face <laughs> like <laughs> That's a third level, right? But I, I take your point. You, you, you decided that the spelling is just the letters, which I think is ridiculous. And I'm sure there are examples in English where the case is so important that it changes the meaning of the thing. But I'm saying aesthetically, I actually right. find capital M, lowercase AC, capital O, capital S, to be less aesthetically pleasing than the way Apple wants you to say it. Because hmm. it looks like I always love Mac Space OS. I love that name. It was, you know, classic Mac OS was called that right. later in its life. You've right. taken that name and squished it up in a way it, that people used to do mistakenly. Right. No, my friend uh, Nat Irons, who's easily top two typo reporters in Daring Fireball history, along with my friend Chris Pepper. Uh, but t dozens, dozens, probably hundreds of typos he's reported to me over the years. Longtime reader, like he, when they first switched to this, he was like, "This is driving me nuts." Because he's, you know, the type of anal retentive, careful reader who not only notices typos when I make them, but then immediately will text me because he knows I care and I want to hear about it. <laughs> when they first changed the name, he was like, "Because he's a longtime Apple user," and he was just like, "I spent an entire decade in the '90s correcting people mm -hmm. when they closed up Mac OS." I can't I can't even with this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least it's consistent. I mean, Apple, Apple on naming has had problems in recent years. So I applaud them for an attempt, a successful attempt to attain consistency, even if it is consistently mediocre. The, uh, what do you think they're going to do with the iPhone name this year? I think they're going to go to 11. And it seems like they, they have to do something in addition to just 11. Like they could do 11 and 11 max, but then what do you call the 10 R model? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, there's with Apple being so inconsistent with naming, you can't really look at the past and try to predict what they're going to do based on that. The, the one thing that the past tells us is that Apple has been willing to take the Roman numeral 10 and use it without incrementing it for a long time. Right. Right. And also what they did with the iPad, where they decided not to put a number on it, the new iPad, that whole right. business. Right. So I feel like that is that option is on the table that these things end up being called the iPhone 10 and the iPhone 10s and the iPhone like. But but I, I don't think it's a likely. It's just, you know, it, I just feel like that is a possibility, a plausible possibility. But honestly, at this point, almost anything is plausible. The number 11 is certainly plausible. A Roman numeral, an X, and then an I is oh. plausible. Would be terrible, but it's plausible. I mean, just you know, think: is that beyond? Is that beyond what Apple would do? No, it is not beyond what modern Apple would do. Apple would totally make that name. 
Yeah, uh, if they use Roman numerals at all, they could use it. You never, you can't rule it out. Yeah, and like, and in the end, like then because they've been so inconsistent, I think they've conditioned us not to attach at least these condition me not to get too hung up on the names because like they're they're always going to be a little bit of a mess and they're not going to really make any sense and stop hoping for an inspired name the inspired name is iphone and it's not and even that's right. not that inspired because when we were all predicting uh back in the job i was working at before the iphone came out we'd make our wwc predictions on a big whiteboard we were at iphone on that whiteboard for years before the iphone came out it was the obvious name for the thing and Apple, Apple makes, you know, it's the, the reverse where you come up with a name. And it's not that the name is great. It's that the product is great and the greatness flows backward into the name. iPhone yeah. is a great name. The stuff they put after and the letters and everything, whatever. Like, we'll get used to whatever they pick. Yeah, I don't know. But I feel like they can't keep in, incrementing the numbers. Like, are they really going to go to 13? Yeah. yeah, what is Samsung? Are Samsung just crossing the 10 barrier this year? I forget. Yeah, because they, they just released this week the... Oh, the Samsung Galaxy Note 10. I think it's called the Note 10. So they're up at 10. And yeah. uh, they had the respect not to not to use a Roman numeral. Yeah, I think I talked about this on ADP, but like uh, other companies have had what in uh, uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing game parlance is a stat crunch where you hmm. name your product and you keep incrementing the number and eventually it becomes so big that it's unwieldy. And you rescale all the numbers. The API did it for their video cards. They they were going up to like the Radeon seven thousand something, eight thousand something, nine thousand something, and they were pushing up against like ninety seven hundred. And they're like, "Are we going to go to ten thousand? Or maybe we can call it ten k?" And they just did a stat crunch. They're like, "Nope." Now it's the Radeon like one hundred, two hundred, three hundred. They just right. reset everything back so far that it's not confusing. You don't think, "What is is the ninety seven hundred better than the new ninety four hundred?" It's like. If the question is, is the 9700 better than the 500? They're so far apart that it's clear they're not in the same family. So they just reset everything. I don't think Apple will do that, but tech companies have done that multiple times in the past. And it's it's a corner that you paint yourself into eventually if you just keep making the number bigger. So you don't even, now that you don't write these reviews, you're not, it's not just that you're not spending your summer writing and screenshotting a 30,000K booklet on the new operating system. You're not even running it, right? Because you can't run it on your Mac Pro. I took a long time off of just like I, I wanted to be completely ignorant of the new Mac operating system just because it was so relaxing, right? right. And, but now I'm more like the average tech nerd. I have the beta installed. I fiddle with it. I I instinctively go through sort of my normal routine after a thing is installed. Basically a routine that lets me look at every piece of user interface like i go through every preference pane and every screen and every tab and every menu item and every and launch every single bundle app it's just sort of like a thing i do to sort of go through the os to find out what's new and maybe look at the versions of command line tools i still do that but i don't do i don't take notes and i don't do it with an eye on retaining anything and so now i'm more just like a casual oh look at this fun thing oh let's try this oh let's do that uh but that's about it what's your what's your take on dark mode I'm personally not a fan. I think it's great that it exists. Right. I, I think it's a lot of work for developers for a feature that is on, on my list of like things that Apple should prioritize in the operating system is fairly low, but I'm not going to ding them for it because it is a good thing to have. And if they're not going to allow theming, which they're not, and Apple's the only one that can do it, they did a really good, I feel like they did a really good job with dark mode, a very difficult task, which is make a dark mode, which I've, it's easy to say dark mode. I just want it to be not so bright. Okay, 
but also I want everything to still be legible. And like, this is what you're not saying. And I want to be able to tell where everything is. And I want the window layering still to work. And I don't want it to be ugly. And I want my applications to be able to support in an intelligent way. It's, it's a big, big, much more complicated feature than you think it is. And Apple, I think, did a really good job of implementing it. And I see a lot of people using it at work. Uh, but yeah. I bet there are a lot of other features that I would have slotted ahead of it in terms of what Apple could have spent time on, though. Wildly popular at, at WWDC. And I want everybody to be comfortable reading and, and true dark mode, as we now have on iOS and Mac OS after a year, is so much nicer on the eyes than using the accessibility feature to just invert do, oh, yeah. do no, just a sort of a dumb inversion yeah. um, where everything light goes dark and I, I'm sure that that feature isn't as simple as I'm thinking either but it, aesthetically it is so much more pleasing and there's so many more subtle cues like with the accessibility feature what was a drop shadow looks like a glow because it's just inverted whereas with dark mode they've done some very clever stuff to provide hints of depth without going to a glow but cognitively i can't i only app i you know i, I run bb edit in dark mode so bb edit sticks out and i like writing on a dark background in bb edit but that's just one app and and it helps me identify that dark window over on the left there's my bb edit window um uh, especially on iOS, trying it on the on the, the betas over the summer, it, it just does. It, there's something cognitively that just does not work for me in dark mode. Like I'm sitting there and I'm like going through emails, and I realize that I don't remember any of the emails I just read. Yeah, I think I think that I talked about this when dark mode was first uh, announced was it last year. Um, that like for me personally, culturally. I don't want my computer to work this way because of the historical baggage. Like when I was a kid, all my first computers were a black CRT right. with light text on it, whether it's monochrome green or amber or whatever. And that's how all computers were until the Mac, which was right. the reverse. And the Mac was like sheets of paper are white and ink is black. That's right. the cultural context of this computer. And it was such a clean break from computer and thing that culturally acknowledges the written word and drawings and everything in the way that you are familiar with it outside the computer world. And that had, I've totally imprinted on that. I want black text on a white background whenever I see text, including in BB Edit and everywhere else. So while every single other person at work has their text editor in dark mode with candy-colored syntax highlighted code all over it, all of my text windows are white and the text is black. Now, obviously, eventually, if I can't look at that because of ice grain or some other reason, you know, there's lots of accessibility reasons to prefer dark. But culturally, philosophically, and emotionally, the Mac is white background with black text on it to me. Yeah, because part of the... the uh, we just don't use the phrase WYSIWYG that much anymore. And it's just... It, it, well, for well, good reason. Well, you don't, Mr. Markdown. Right. <laughs> Well, you can get WYSIWYG in a preview window. That's uh, not what WYSIWYG means. I know, I know. Because <laughs> you're not editing. You get Kids don't even know. Uh, how many people listen to the podcast when we say WYSIWYG know what we even mean anymore? I wonder. I do wonder. They think we're with W-I-Z-Z-Y-W-I-G is what they think we're saying. Right. Uh, yeah, maybe. But part of the WYSIWYG revolution of the 1984 Mac wasn't just that like when you opened a word processor that you didn't have to input formatting codes and 
you know, that you had real fonts to pick from. And if you put an image in, you actually saw the image right where it was. But it was just like you said, like it was the fact that it was a white window with black text. So it was even more what you see is what you get because you could, uh, you know, what you saw on screen. It was like the the original Mac, right? The original Mac, there was one Mac. There was only one. There was one printer that you could hook up to it. And if you bought that Mac and you bought that printer and you bought MacWrite and you wrote something in MacWrite and you had it in your MacWrite window and then you printed it and then you took that piece of paper and you held it up against the damn screen that you just typed it on, the idea was what you saw is what you get. And that became increasingly less true over time as DPI monitors changed and printers right. changes, right? But in general, that was the promise and the dream. And it was absolutely unheard of in any other context because the printer, you know, character printers, they printed whatever the hell characters they wanted. They didn't care what was on your screen, right? right. And the other ones were, you know, like a sort of a desktop publishing type system or with uh, formatting codes or whatever, what you printed out had no relation to the gibberish you were seeing on your screen, right? And the Mac was, you know, what you see is actually what you get, more or less. And it was it was amazing. It it was definitely a revolution, and I don't think people pick that up. And yeah, I have the same cultural feelings about Dark Mode, too, where it just doesn't look right to me. Um, what are your thoughts on the sort of increasing... Uh, I don't know if it's all sandboxing, but the increasing number of warnings when you do quote-unquote dangerous things on on mac os i know jason snell has written and talked about it quite a bit recently uh i haven't listened to the most recent version of his podcast but uh but i know he got some feedback <laughs> from apple about it uh, i don't know I, I i i don't know what the solution is i get why they're doing some of these things i really hope i really hope that they're not just tightening down hypotheticals that they're really like, Hey, we know some bad things, you know, some things that apps have been doing. And, um, so we're doing this for good reason, not just because it could be, but boy, it's starting to get annoying in my opinion. Yeah. If, say if I was writing, still writing reviews, uh, first of all, I would have, have experienced this more because just fiddling around as I just described the new beta operating system, you won't run across this until you actually start using it to do real work. Or right. if you know that they're making changes in this area and you will investigate deeply and right. do a bunch of synthetic experiments to find out what the, uh, the barriers are. This incidentally would be a nightmare section to do because these are the type of policy changes mm. that they can make right up to the last minute. Like the mechanisms yeah. are all there. Like here we have a system for controlling this, but you can change the policy in the OS at any point and probably already have changed the policy. Um, so yeah, I see what they're, I, I see what they're going for, but I think if I had to write about this, I would get very philosophical and say like the goals of safety, predictability and confinement are laudable, but the best way to get the thing that you have to the state where those goals are achieved may not be to take the thing that you have and just start putting tiny padlocks on every single little door. Like the reason iOS has these properties that they want to bring to the map is that Mac is that iOS is fundamentally different in many ways. And I don't think you can get the Mac to that level of security by taking the Mac as it exists and putting tiny locks all over the place. Like I don't like technically you probably can, but it will be a terrible experience. So there's a reason iOS doesn't work this way. If you, if this is your goal, you have to look at the Mac and say, 
are there parts of the system that we need to change in radical ways to get to there? Rather than saying, here is how the system works, how can we start making minor modifications to slowly ratchet our way up to that level of security? Because that is putting the security ahead of the user experience in a in a mild way, but that eventually cumulatively makes the overall experience much worse. Right. And it's like, I want, I think bicycles should be made to be as safe as possible, but sometimes you want to ride your bicycle dangerously fast and it's your bicycle and you should be allowed to do that. Well, that's the second thing I didn't, I didn't even touch on that thing, which is okay. But what if that goal of being like iOS in terms of security is incompatible with one of the reasons that people like Macs? then, then right. you've got a, you've got a dilemma there. Cause it's like, do we just decide that that's not the way our devices are going to work moving forward? Or can we preserve that thing that people like about the Mac and provide that functionality, continue to provide it in a safer way? And the the current thing is, is both, uh, you know, the, the best example of these entitlements that all this temporary stuff in the name, it's like yeah. temporary, like this is fundamentally how, you know, insert program here works. Either programs like this are going to be allowed to exist or they're not going to be allowed to exist. But there's no amount of temporary indulgences that you can give it. Like, it's just, it's like, do you not understand the tension here? People want to use their Macs to do this thing. Saying, you can keep doing that thing for now is not reassuring. What we want to hear is, we've come up with a safer, better way for your thing to continue doing its thing. And they've never said that. They're just like, Hey, you can we'll grandfather you in. Here's some temporary entitlements. Uh, you know, I like they never come out and say, "Have you have you considered not being that kind of application?" <laughs> like I don't know if they actually tell the people, "Like, have you considered not having access to the whole file system?" It's like, "I'm I'm a disk cloning application." It's like, right. "Have you considered not being a disk cloning application?" It's like, well, <laughs> "Do you want disk cloning applications to exist or want or not?" If you do want them to exist, that has to be on your list of requirements you can't just hope they go away and give them temporary entitlements and, and litter them with dialogue boxes like I, I, there's there's a disconnect between any sort of coherent future vision for the mac and what they've been what changes they've been making in the operating system like there's they're diverging the one i ran into a couple months ago was i was doing something in terminal and i forget where i wanted to go but maybe it was in one of those containers in my home library folder i don't know I was somewhere where there are protections, like, I don't know, maybe in my mail folders or something. And I'm in terminal and I typed LS and there was like nothing. I got no results. I'm like, there's gotta be, I know there's stuff here. And I like opened, uh, like open dot just to open this current, uh, isn't that what you type to get it open in a finder? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I did that and I saw the, if the finder could see these files and I go back to terminal and type LS and there's nothing. And I realized I had to grant terminal full disk access, but I didn't get, it didn't say, you know, there was no warning. I just had to know it. And for some reason, like uh, with apps like BB edit, which I grant full disk access to, so I can open anything and super duper a disk cloning utility where you obviously, it's like, I know that I've got to grant super duper full disk access and super duper even help if it doesn't have it will helpfully tell me when it launches that hey you need to we we can't do our thing without full disk access because that that was like an alternate name for the app <laughs> full disk access uh whereas terminal it, it i spent more minutes scratching my head on this than i would like to admit because who would ever think that terminal wouldn't 
be able to just list files wherever you are. Like yep. I'm in terminal. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another that's another thing that Apple has done recently. And again, I understand the reasons for it, but is it it violates some sort of uh, the, the mental model of a whole different uh, sort of cultural domain, which is system integrity protection. The right. Unix model has always been: if you're root, you can do anything. System integrity protection changed that. You can be right. root and also not be able to do something. That just doesn't even make any sense from the the model of Unix, which is fine to have different models and change things around. But that's it's getting back to one of the things that people love about Max. It was Unix with a nice GUI on top. And right. Some people who love Unix love Max. Some people who love Max love Unix. And some people who love both love them. And both of those realms are seeing changes. And to be fair, this happens in Unix outside of the Mac as well, where Unix does change over time. But like to make that kind of change, like if this, if this is the thing you're going to do. It's like we want to have system integrity and protection. We want there for th- there to be things that root can't do. A Unixy way to make that change. A more Unixy way would be to define a new super root user that's rootier right. than root, so right. that you would keep the model the same, but that there would be a Unixy way to you know if you sudo from mute for some with some flag, you can become the super duper root and you can still do everything. Like in other words, change Unix, but change it in a way that still feels like Unix. You just added one more layer of stuff. Right. And system right. integrity protection is like the answer is like reboot with it off or whatever. Like I understand why they did it the way they did it because it's a security feature and if you could just bypass it that easily but entering your admin password it just becomes like it it all makes sense. I'm just saying like it's it feels uncomfortable to take a well-established I keep saying culture, but like that's really what it is. A well-established culture of a realm of computing and start modifying it in ways that that fly in the face of of the history like that are not well integrated with the whole. Yeah, like you, you expect sudo ls to always list the files in the current uh, system. You don't really expect it's not a very Unixy thing to say. Well, go find terminal app or or go to your system preferences and hit a plus button and choose it from a GUI picker to to yeah. grant full display. Or if I can't delete a file, change it to any VRAM setting and reboot, and then you'll yeah. be able to delete the file. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't. <laughs> That doesn't really fit either. The other thing, so I, I'm torn on this, and I know Jason and I went back and forth uh, on Twitter about it. Like, I kind of there's a part of me that says that I want like an expert mode. I want, and maybe maybe it's not even a checkbox in system preferences. Maybe it's like a thing you have to type at the command line in terminal just to sort of show your command line bona fides. But I kind of want to turn all that a lot of that stuff off. And I kind of wish that there was an expert mode. I get it, though. Like, the, as soon as those words come out of my mouth, I immediately, the, the GUI designer in me is like, once you start, start adding an expert mode, you know, you're, you've, you've, lost the, you've lost the plot a little bit. Right, like it, I mean, you're bargaining. Like, you're just like, I, right. I can see how this could be implemented, and please give it to me because I don't want to be annoyed. But I think what we all really want is the ability to continue to do the powerful things that we enjoy the Mac for. But also in a safer way, like that we we want. So it's it's not a middle path. It is a fundamental change. Like it's like, do you want the Mac to be safer? You need to figure out a way to make the Mac safer, while also not only retaining all of the power we had before, but if anything, making it more powerful. And that requires rethinking on a level way above sort of 
adding security. It's, it is, as you said many years ago, Ronco spray on security. That's right. not the way security works. You have no. to. And like, <laughs> that's, just, that's the way bad security yeah. works. And it's and it's a difficult problem because you see the you see the conflict. Here's the way the Mac has always worked, and here's security. How do I get them together? What you have to think is, well, what do people actually use the Mac for? Like what? What in what ways do they need flexibility, and you know, and, and what, along what axes does do their workflows change, and then provide safe, secure mechanisms to continue to make those changes, and that requires rethinking at a much greater level than they're changing. Like it's it's a type of rethinking that happened between classic macOS and macOS ten. That level of rethinking is required to get us to an operating system that retains and enhances the power of the Mac, but has the security of iOS. We are never going to get there by making small changes to the existing Mac operating system. Right, and this death by a thousand paper cuts of authorization. Right, right. now it's just this terrible negotiation of who's going to be the most annoyed, like how secure versus how much annoyance, and that is not a trade-off you want to feel like you're making. iOS is a good example. Not that we want the Mac to work like iOS, but that those trade-offs didn't happen the fundamental design of ios is the way it is because it was designed from the beginning to provide that level right. of security and now they're trying to add features to it uh which they're i feel like they're able to do more easily add features to a system that's already secure in these ways than to add security right. because there is no expectation on everything they've given us in ios every new piece of functionality has been like we've never been able to do this before so it, it's a blessing it's a bonus we are not starting at a level of infinite power and then watching our power wane we are starting at right. a level of total constraints and then rejoicing when we can use third-party keyboards right and we've always you know it, it, i'm not gonna say, i don't want to tempt tempt the gods but uh so for some definition of can't which isn't really can't it's probably shouldn't and and to their credit they they typically don't it's hard to take away an automation system that people really use like at at this point so many you know people in the mac os 10 era are used to having uh, scripting languages like perl and python and ruby at their fingertips uh they're used to being able to write a bash script or something you know do something like that apple script i mean i does anybody really think People at Apple still love AppleScript and it's still around, but it is still around because there are, are a lot of people who really count on it. Um, you know, and apps like Keyboard Maestro, one of my favorites, have long had superpowers that, you know, to z automate things in your on screen uh, buttons and stuff like that in a way that can't be scripted otherwise. It'd be hard to take that away, but it's. I kind of just want to authorize all of it. The other thing I, my other complaint is that I don't feel like these uh, entitlements, the, the way that you as the power user who wants to change them, I don't think they're organized very well at all. Like I tend to think that there, there should be a way to do it by app. So that instead of fishing all over system preferences to find the three places where I want to add BB Edit as as a special app and give it entitlements, I'd rather just say here's BB Edit and here's the permissions I want to grant to it. Yeah, check well, check, the, check check. I want to check them all. Yeah, the whole system is not uh, not designed very well. Like from a software developer's perspective, like the nightmare of having to explain to all your users to do this dance. Like there's a lot of steps. The steps are complicated, and they require a bunch of skills that not every Mac user has, especially in this day of, of people being raised on iPhones. 
involves using another application with separate windows, involves dragging something from somewhere into that window. As you said, there's no way to organize by application. And I think iOS has a better model here where, for the most part, the iOS model is that if an application wants to do a thing that it requires permission for, it prompts you and that you uh, you can say allow or deny like right from the application. So it's not, it's not like this is making you go someplace else right. and drag a thing or whatever. And then the second thing is that they're adding now is these reminders which say, just so you know, the Facebook application has been using your location for the past three hours and here's where, it, you know, like those right. dialog boxes. Yeah. That is a, a great, you know, suspenders to add to the belt to say, <laughs> yeah, we know you tapped through that dialog and it was really easy to do. But just a reminder, this is what this app is doing. Those right. two things combined makes people aware of what the app is doing while also not requiring them to do more complicated stuff. Like there's nothing – developers of iOS applications don't have to have like a readme file or a support site explaining to people how to click allow. Like it's right. – it's people – it's very easy to do. It's way too complicated to do that on the Mac. Even – I find it annoying just because it's so tedious and time-consuming. Like – I understand the consequences. If it's good enough for iOS, explain to me the consequences here. Allow me to quickly say yes, but then, uh, to your point, have some place where this is more visible to me. A Mac-like way to do it would be some kind of like activity report. Maybe you can maybe you can be in screen time for the Mac. You know, like so right. should buy application to show me what they're all doing, so, so I can look at a report if I'm interested, and then proactively, occasionally remind me that something's doing a weird thing. So I have, you know, it's it's a delicate balance, but. That's that's the line they're trying to walk with the Mac now, and and with iOS for that matter. And on the Mac, they're they have made it too complicated and too annoying. Yeah, it's occurred to me that maybe they could put some of that in the Get Info window in the Finder. So if you select an app and <laughs> no, you do nobody Command knows who, I. knows what that window is. <laughs> you, you, I do, <laughs> of course. I I just did it ten minutes ago today, but nobody else ever looks at that window. <laughs> Do you know, there's another thing, so this is the Mac OS X knowledge that I think even fewer people know. Do you know the difference between uh, Command I and Command Option I? Command Option I is show info, and it's a, uh, instead of Command I will open a window, and then if you select another file, it, it doesn't change, but uh, Command Option I will show you a floating palette, and as the selection changes in the finder, it changes what it's showing you the info for. Mm -hmm. And we are the only two people who know that. <laughs> In the entire world, I, I thought when <laughs> I they use did, it all the time in Inspector I, versus Info Windows, but it's just it's such a it's such a relic of classic Mac OS. It's still hanging out there. Uh, and and the, the command option I is not from classic Mac OS. That's a Nexism, no. I believe, that we, we yeah. benefited from during the transition. Yeah, because Next was a little bit more uh, Inspectory. Inspe yeah, Inspectory. Uh, yeah, sort of weird that they're both there, but I remember thinking it was pretty cool. And it yeah, don't, and, don't tell anybody. Someone on Apple will find out they're both there and remove one of them. <laughs> uh, I will say, while you mention it, Next is an exception to my spelling rules. I do spell it the way that Next I know, spelled you, it. You're a mess. The, We've gone over this. With capital, your punctuation outside the quotes and you're spelling Next with the, you know. Capital X and T, because it just, it when you spell it without their funky capitalization, it doesn't look like the same company. It's like it, it doesn't read to me as the the former company that yeah. Apple acquired with Steve Jobs. Just like Mac OS all squished together with capital M doesn't read like an Apple product test because there's no Apple product by that name. I don't know how much longer we can roll, but let me thank our third and final sponsor. You're never going to guess who it is. It's our good friends at Squarespace. I love this company. Look, Squarespace is where you go to build, host, maintain a website. You can build a store. 
you could host a podcast, you could host a blog, you could host a portfolio of your work. If you're a designer, you could put menus up if you run in a restaurant or you know someone who's running a restaurant. Anything you could do with a website or mix and match multiple of those things, you could do it with Squarespace. And you do it all. Here's that word, WYSIWYG. It's all in a WYSIWYG fashion. You do it right in a browser window. You drag stuff. You see it. As you drag it, that's what you get. Uh, really, what you see is what you get. They have, in my opinion, one of the nicest analytic interfaces I've ever seen. Uh, so clear, such good data design, and it gives you a nice overview of where people are, are going on your site, where they're coming from. A lot less confusing than most analytics packages that I've ever seen, which typically seem like they were designed by people who shouldn't be designing anything. Um, just a great company. They have great customer service. Here's the deal. Next time you need a website or next time somebody comes to you and needs a website, try it at Squarespace first. Give it an hour. See how far you get. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. And remember this. Enter this offer code TALKSHOW. No the, just talk show at checkout. So you don't need it when you sign up. You can get started and then you get like 30-day free trial. When the 30 days are up and you want to keep your website, just remember talk show and you save 10%. What's the ATP code? Probably just ATP. Yep, I think so. Yeah. You don't know. You don't listen to the ads. <laughs> I can't do it. I was telling Marco when we were doing I know Marco records the ads for the ATP before you guys start recording and then he can just he just slots them in uh but when you're i don't listen to your live telecast i always listen to the edited version when he when you guys do sponsor breaks how long do they last just a couple seconds or do you guys get up and you know refresh your beverages in the live show yeah like when you're They're, recording like let's yeah. say it's wednesday it's last night right you probably yep. you guys probably did a show last night uh so like when you're recording and you've got a live audience that is listening along and chatting and IRC. Um, what are the what, what does Marco do for the sponsor breaks? There are no sponsor breaks. Can't stop, won't stop. Show must so you go just on. Just keep going, but there, you don't even mention Straight it. Straight through, no... not even mentioned. Hmm. We don't even know where the ads are going to be when we're huh. done recording in a live show. I I I have a lot of trouble doing uh, sponsor reads in post. I, it takes me. I you know. I you think I did it. You got to do it pre. I did it, you know, I think I did a fine job with those three sponsor uh, reads tonight. Uh, one take right there, straight through. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything I forgot to mention. But when I do them in post, because like, let's say that uh, I don't have the ad when I'm, you know, it's, I, I told you I, we record tonight, but I, maybe I don't have the text for one of the ads. I'll do it tomorrow. It takes me like six takes. <laughs> and I feel like an idiot. And and I'll, I'll like, and there are times where I do it, it, it in posts like that and i look at the running time and it's like seven minutes and i'm like what the hell i mean i know my sponsor reads are sometimes long but seven minutes what the hell am i doing it's like without the pressure of feeling like i'm i'm wasting you john syracuse's or whoever my guest of the the episode is like i don't want to bore you i don't want to waste your time uh so it, it gives me like an edge and it, it keeps me sharp on a sponsor read whereas when i'm just talking to myself in a microphone uh, I do a terrible job. That's just, an acquired skill, just like doing the ad reads in the show. It's, I'm sure it's a thing you could get good at if you wanted to do it. You got good at doing the ads in the show, right? So it's just a, a question of practice. I, I yeah. feel like if, you, if it's something you wanted to do, a change you wanted to make, you could do it. But I, you sound comfortable doing them live in the show. And 
it's, it's also a very different feeling psychologically. Like I feel like right here we're having a conversation and I'm not talking to myself. And when I first started doing podcasts, I definitely was self-conscious about it. It seems weird. I never really spent much time speaking into a microphone. Uh, I thought it was very weird in the first years of it, hearing my own voice in my headphones and Technically, I don't even know what changed in the interim, but there was also a, like in the early years doing the show with Dan Benjamin, there was also a little bit of lag with the audio and it would, it would drive me nuts. Like I, I couldn't finish a sentence sometimes because I, I'm hearing my words from half a second ago. You get used to it, but I still find like if I record the ads like that, I, I, I have this, it's incredibly self-conscious. I'm doing something very weird talking to myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the beauty of it is you can do six takes because who cares? It's time consuming, but at least you you are all. It's like it's like writing. You know, you should during during Fireball Live versus being able to write ahead of time and then decide when it's ready to be published. There you go. Uh, I hear you bought a fridge. Marco oh yes, says. I did. <laughs> and you talked about it with a friend of the show, Merlin Mann, on your show. Uh, Honest to God, like that was reconcilable differences. I I did buy a fridge and that was intended to be like, oh, I bought a fridge. Let me just mention it for two minutes. But it just it just spooled out of me and eventually became an entire show like was not not the intention. And it's not even like it's not even really like a good story with like a twist ending or anything like it's not (laughs) even a story at all. It is just merely a a, a sort of a, a recitation of. The events involving the purchase and installation of a refrigerator, but I'm I'm glad people enjoyed it. Uh, here I'll put a link in Rectifs fridge show. You must have had tons of this with you know your when when new you house, moved, moved yeah. Into, yeah, and you got like new furniture and new kitchen and new. I mean, I don't know, unless Amy just deals with all this stuff, but like it's <laughs> just it's got to be you know that multiplied by a thousand, right? Uh, yeah, I love our fridge. We have a really nice fridge, and I love it to death. It's one of my favorite things I've ever owned, and it's always got ice, and it doesn't have doesn't have a stupid thing you stick a cup in and it shoots ice. You just open the freezer drawer, and then there's a big bucket of ice, and it's always filled up, and we're never out of ice, which was in our old house where we rented and had like a typical renter's fridge. You know, kept stuff cold, kept stuff frozen, but, you know, didn't really have any any features. Gotta have that uh, ice. Do you do any of the fancy ice stuff for your fancy drinks? Uh, no. I've got these. Uh, uh, I'm not a believer in that. Uh, it, I think it's sort of a waste of time. It, even though, like the clear ice. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. uh, I, or weird I, I, shapes I, like balls or large I, cubes. Uh, I have the balls, but what I have that's easier, and it's the only thing I really use, are the large cubes, and they're in a. Is it silicon or silicone? Silicone. I think it's a brand called Tuvalo. Uh, the Tuvalo King Size Ice. Let's see if that's right. Um, and it's super easy. You just fill it up, and it makes six, you know, sort of fist size cubes of ice. Here's the, here's the question: If uh, you had a magic cost free, super efficient butler who could give you perfectly clear ice whenever you wanted it instantly, would you use that in your drinks? No. I honestly don't care about clear ice. I really don't. And I care about so many things. And I, uh, like if I am making a cocktail, I would like, I like to have a really nice, uh, like if there's like a lemon slice or, you know, a peel, 
Uh, I like to make that nice and neat. I like to pick my own lemons and oranges, and I pick them specifically as to whether the rind has any <laughs> any gross no, no deformities. Blemishes. No blemishes. No blue then, ink. But I, I, I don't get it. I, I, you know, I have all sorts of weird quirks. I, I'm picky about my pens. I'm picky about all sorts of things. So I'm not putting anybody down who is picky about clear ice. And uh, our friends at Studio Neat who make all sorts of fun stuff like the space pen and notebooks and the, uh, the Glyph, which is a great product. That's a little uh, tripod mount for any phone. So you can snap it on your phone and put it on a tripod. They make all sorts of cool stuff, including a clear ice kit, and I just could not care about their clear ice kit. Well, the kit means you have to make it yourself. I was just asking, like, if you if you could get it instantly, but you don't care about it. Like, I I don't care about drinks, and I don't really drink at all. But I do think clear ice is really cool. And the main, uh, first of all, I think it looks cool. But the second thing is, if, if you're talking about different sizes and shapes, you have a drink, like in the summer, where the ice starts to get small, and you drink, and some of the ice cubes come into your mouth, right? Hmm. When an ice cube has all the air pockets, the sort of texture and also kind of taste of an ice cube with a bunch of those air pockets on your tongue is very different from an ice cube that does not have all those air pockets in it. Like, I feel like it, it actually changes how the drink tastes, even if it's just ice water. You know the yeah. taste I'm talking about? The, the, yeah, the yeah. aerated ice cube taste? And I, yeah. I find the clear ice more luxurious. That said, I do not make clear ice and I've never made it in my entire life and never would because it's way too much of a hassle for me to deal with and I don't even put ice in my drinks most of the time so it's not a thing that is a factor in my life but I do I do find it appealing so if I had that instant butler I would accept clear ice almost all the time yeah well I guess if I had the butler I mean who am I kidding <laughs> what, is that, is that, what is your preference like you know it, would you rather have a clear ice cube or a non-clear one the clear ones look cooler and I feel like they taste better yeah, I guess if I didn't have to do any work, I wouldn't have to. Uh, even my pal Lee, the guy who runs Hopsing Laundry, my beloved cocktail bar here in Philly, where he fusses over everything. He does not fuss over clear ice. He has very good ice, um, and he's very particular that this drink gets a cube and this drink gets a sphere and whatever, but he doesn't bother with the clear ice. Like the silicone thing, I don't see anything in the silicone thing that helps with the clearing no this doesn't oh, yes. clear this is just a way oh, to make just, oh, yeah, okay. just a way to make big ice cubes yeah and if it you're does... doing it commercially like unless i guess you could increase your price by a lot if you go through the hassle but it is quite a hassle to do yeah and it's like you know some of these ones it's like they make a big thing and then it's like the the the, the non-clear part settles to the bottom and you got to sit there and like cut it in half and all this stuff mm -hmm. and, and i've seen things on youtube where there's like restaurants that have like forty thousand dollar ice cube makers just to get clear ice mm -hmm. How did we get off on the ice? Oh, the refrigerator talk. That's right. Uh, it, I, I'll tell you what, though. The, as much as I like the fridge, we have a... I forget the name of the brand, but we have a supposedly a Osco. I forget what it is. A dishwasher. Bosch? Uh, no, it's something else. But I don't want to besmirch them too bad, but it's apparently a very nice dishwasher. It does get the dishes clean, I will say. It will get the dishes clean, but... Man, oh man, is the interface terrible? And it's got even though it's it's brand new and it's nice, it has those uh, has those type of buttons that kind of click, and I guess they're waterproof. You know what I mean? That there's like a membrane, sort of like microwave buttons often are, but the but your touches just don't register sometimes, and you'll hit like and start. You, and you just press harder. 
Yeah, and you hit start, and it and it makes I don't know what the symbol means. It you hit start, and it makes it puts three little horizontal lines up on the screen. Yeah, I mean, and that means go, and you close the door, and then nothing happens. Hmm. And then you open it up, and you hit the same button, and you get the same three lines, and you close the door, and it kicks in. Yeah, this is, I feel like is a gap in still still in this modern age. Like we were all so excited when you know back in our youth when Consumer Reports came. It's like finally someone is going to do reviews of things that people previously didn't review, like a, a clear-eyed look at dishwashers and reliability in cars. And in the modern era, we have things like, well, this is just, you know, online reviews was a big revolution, then things like the wire cutter, where they're like, I don't have time to read a bunch of reviews, just tell me which one I should buy. None of these, I feel like, address this major concern that is such a factor in all of our lives, which is, is this the best whatever for you? Oh, here's how much it costs, here's the features it has. If the interface drives you insane, that is a huge factor. I don't right. care how reliable it is. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how clear it gets. It's just every day I have to use this interface. If the buttons are annoying depressed, let alone if the buttons are inscrutable, and I feel like there's, you know, I'm, I'm mostly complaining about the wire card here. There's way too little emphasis in consumer reports, in any kind of product reviews, in the wire cutter of the user interface of physical products that can make it, make or break. Like, I understand you do want to know how does it perform and you do want to know about reliability and you do want to know about features. But in the end, even if you have all of those, if uh, the thing that you're describing is the case, this, this, you will not love this appliance. This appliance will slowly drive you mad. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's dishwasher driving me mad. The other thing that stinks, and I get it, you know, I want to be a good citizen. I, I, maybe it's even legal now. I don't know. But it takes forever to clean the dishes. It does get them very clean. But I guess, you know, like as a water saving measure, it, it it's squirting like one tiny hot thing at a time. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I do. mine, mine also takes a long time. And I, I do wonder. I, I assumed it took forever because it's doing like an extremely thorough job because I feel like it is doing an extremely thorough job. But I don't, I don't know what's going on inside there that i don't know what's taking so long i was talking to marco about it marco's marco's convinced it's a, it's a water saving measure maybe uh, uh but it's funny because it's like it it, it, it just shows the difference you know it, people in all sorts of industries people who are designing engineers who are designing dishwashers are thinking about water converse at con conservation now whereas like you just know that like when dishwashers first became a thing like i don't know late 50s early 60s the engineers at general electric all they were thinking was <laughs> how do we hose down these dishes as fast as we can because that's yeah, a selling I mean, feature that's the, the error where they said if we can get these dishes clean by spraying them with radiation we'll do it <laughs> we don't <laughs> right. care about you your health the environment we just want to get dishes clean and then we're going to advertise the hell out of the fact that ours is faster than the other mm -hmm. guys yeah our radiation really removes every trace of dirt <laughs> Totally, totally sanitizes them. No life <laughs> remains on these dishes when we're done with them. I had a link in here. Uh, it looks like David Pogue is back at the New York Times. I don't know if, if that's a one-off thing. I haven't looked. I, yeah, I saw that, Yahoo for that a while. story fly through, but I didn't follow the link and didn't note that it was the New York Times. He had a, it's a story on Easter eggs. And, Did he uh, just totally rip off James Thompson's uh, presentation? Do you know what? I don't know because I, I have James Thompson uh, of... of uh, Peacock fame and drag thing fame for those of us who are a little bit older. Do you still use drag thing? I'm running it right now. I'm looking at it right now. Even though it's not retina, but you don't have a retina display. I don't have a retina display, so no problem. So James Thompson was at a conference recently and did like a 28-minute talk on the history of Easter eggs. I've got it saved up. I have seen rave reviews of people saying that this is they knocked it out of the park. Knowing James, I'm sure that he did. 
for <laughs> for those of you who don't know, peacocks peacocks Easter eggs are some of the most. <laughs> Well, see, I feel like those are not Easter eggs. Like, that's, I know. That's what this I feel like the definition of Easter egg has expanded to ridiculous degrees. It's kind of like uh, Lunatic Fringe. Lunatic Fringe was not an Easter egg in After Dark. Lunatic right, Fringe right. was a feature of After Dark. It wasn't a hidden cool thing that you could discover. It was totally right. there. It was like it was just a feature. And in the same way, PCALC, which is ostensibly a calculator, has a quote-unquote Easter egg where there's an entire crazy 3D game environment in the same and, application. And AR. <laughs> yeah, and AR. Like it, yeah. But, but it, is, it is not a cute hidden little feature right. somewhere that you would notice or could trigger. Even when you have things like, oh, the breakout game in System 7 or whatever, that counts as an Easter egg because it was hidden. Like an Easter right. egg is hidden. And I guess the about stuff, is, the, the Peacock stuff is kind of hidden in the about screen. But at a certain point, like I would love to know a number of lines of code <laughs> how how much of pcalc is the quote-unquote easter egg and how much is the calculator at this point how much is the math engine or as james would call it probably the maths engine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With, the, with the code carried over from whatever he wrote it in pascal like 20 something years ago i'm just curious what if you have any fond memories of easter eggs from back in the day what was the the finder one was it the it was the finder and if you held down the option key yep. and went to about this mac no about it, the about the finder is was about what, the finder yeah uh, with the little uh, mountain range. Yep, I did that. Here, here's the thing that I'm, I was thinking about Easter eggs the other day. I, I watched James's thing as well. That little thing where you hold down the option key when you select the about and it changes to the about the finder and you see the little Sierra Nevada mountains in sort of this abstract black and white artwork. Um, I must have activated that Easter egg hundreds of times in my life on my Mac. Why? Like, once I did it once, then I knew that it was there. Uh, the discovery had been made. There's not. It's not like there was any interactive elements or anything. Right. If you, you know, if there was scrolling credits, you can watch them scroll. But once you've done that, that's it. And I wasn't showing people. It's not like other people were there with me. Hey, let me show you this cool Easter egg that you might not know about on your Mac. Just me, by myself, I would activate that Easter egg. And I think the reason I was doing it was like, you know, the, the thing that Apple says about all their current products, but is actually true of Easter eggs. Surprise and delight. You, I just needed, a, like, I just liked the idea that it was there, and I would just activate it and get a little smile and be like, and have a little, little tiny microdose of joy. Right. So yeah, there's that thing that somebody did because they thought it would be fun. And there's that my, graphic. My favorite, or one of my favorites, was uh, Quark Express had one. And I might misremember, it's been a long time since I've used Quirk Express, but for a number of years, I used Quirk Express more than I used any other app. I used it more than BB Edit even. Um, and I got really, really good at it. And there was a keyboard shortcut to to delete the current element. And it wasn't just the delete key. It was like Command Option K or something like that. And the the the, the idea was, I think, that you could be like in text editing mode where the delete key would delete the last character, but what you really want to do is you want to delete the whole text box that you've placed on the pasteboard. So you do command option K or something like that. But if you held down an extra key, I forget if it was control, I think it was control. So you do control command option K, a little alien came out from the side, marched over and then shot the element you were deleting with a ray gun. And it, you know, it would take like 20 seconds for this. And I, 
I used it all the time. Like late at night at the student newspaper, like you start going stir crazy. I would, I would, <laughs> I would make the little Quark Express alien come out and spend twenty seconds deleting a thing that I could have deleted completely instantaneously. One but I thought that was amusing. One of the beautiful things of the modern internet is that you can find a video of that happening, I believe, on YouTube or some other source. Because I remember googling it uh, at some time in the past and seeing the little animation. I never used Quark Express in real life, but yeah, it's right. totally one of those little Easter eggs that you know just there to be fun and why were you activating it because you were looking for a tiny microdose of surprise and delight yeah uh i wouldn't be surprised if james mentioned it but mailsmith had an easter egg where on uh on april 1st it would add a preference to the notification set mailsmith is a, the email client made by barebone software based on the text engine of bbedit um and on April 1st, it would add a preference, and I think it was on by default, to deliver a, a 10 kilovolt electric shock with each new email. And all it did is play like a little buzz sound, um, which was funny. Uh, I'm not really much for April 1st gags, but it was all right. But, but I do recall that while I was there, we got <laughs> did get some support mail <laughs> from people who did not realize it was a joke. <laughs> I remember... Uh being impressed the one of the other easter eggs i was impressed by that it in, invoked a new era of easter eggs was the first the first think 3d easter egg that i experienced which was the iguana flag on the power max that mm, was i a, don't remember this it was a nice combination i think it's in james's talk it was a nice combination hmm. of so the power mac the whole big thing with the power mac was a power pc macintosh and they had the whole message and sort of you know significance in the community was that these are much faster than your old Macs. They are more powerful. They can do all sorts of neat things that your old Mac could never do. Oh, right, right. Like and the graphing calculator. Yeah. Uh, and it was, and the Easter eggs followed along with that. And I, this was, I, I think this was in, in firmware or something, or maybe there was some kind of key combination. I forget how to activate it. But basically, it would take over your entire screen with a comically grainy, by today's standard, uh, background image of one infinite loop with the flags that are, you know, in front of the building, right? It was a kind of zoomed in more. And there was a flagpole, and hanging from the flagpole was a flag. I think it had a, a flag with a, a somebody's pet iguana on it or something. And it was rendered in QuickDraw 3D, which you can recall as Apple's <laughs> attempted a 3D API back in the day. Or maybe it was mm -hmm. maybe it was like QuickDraw 3D Rave, or I don't know. I don't remember yeah. the particular standard, but anyway, it was a 3D flag, again, comically grainy with a comically small number of polygons on it. And it would flap in the breeze. And that this alone, it doesn't make any sense that this would be impressive, but this alone was impressive, that you'd have a big color graphic, which looked, quote-unquote, photorealistic in the background because it was just a photo, uh, and then a 3D flag flapping in the breeze, which is really was a really hard thing to do. And it was demonstrating, that as it, as it flapped at like 12 frames per second or whatever, it was demonstrating the amazing power of these new computers because you couldn't hope to render this at all at like one frame every seven seconds on like an old Mac or worse, right? Right. And you had mouse control. I don't think there was a cursor on the screen, but if you move the mouse around, you could influence the direction of the wind on the flag. So you didn't actually see a cursor, but you'd notice that it was interactive, that you changed the direction of the wind. Uh, and by changing the direction of the wind, you know, sort of making it go all the way to the right and all the way to the left and all the way to the right, like back and forth, whipping, making the flag whip back and forth, you could eventually tear the flag off of the pole and it would like flutter down. And this was an amazing Easter egg because it was like hidden inside your computer. It was 3D graphics and it was interactive and it was weird and had an iguana on it. And it was super Apple focused and it demonstrated the power of your Power Mac. That's another one that stands out in my memory. 
It's a little weird that Apple doesn't do stuff like that anymore. I mean, you get the feeling that Steve Jobs wasn't really a, a fan of that sort of thing. Which is I, weird, I've, because if you think about Steve Jobs making, like, blue boxes with Waz, he was to- right. and the pirate flag and everything like that, th- that was totally up his alley, but at yeah. a certain point, he, he turned the car around. He outgrew around it. it. Yeah, he outgrew it. Or, or either outgrew it or decided that if it's not him doing it, don't do it, because now you're messing up his thing. It's great when he's messing up AT&T's phone yeah. system. It's not so great when you're messing up his thing. Yeah, because the other thing I wouldn't I don't know if sometimes you'd call them Easter eggs just because they were clever, um, but just a, a, an about box that did something interesting. You know, you'd go to about this Mac or about this app and it would, you know, people it was a it was a place for for clever developers to blow off steam. I mean, yeah. James obviously still has it, but um, BBS still got it, too. Yeah, yeah. But that's that was thrown by the wayside. It was the one. It was the one window that the developer felt like was for them. It was a place where you could go. The only reason the user would go there is to maybe get a version number. So that's the only information you have to convey. But every other part of that window is it's like it's a place for the developer to take a bow. And depending on how deeply you want to bow, if you want to put in your breakout game or a three D driving game with an AR component, that's the place to do it. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that Apple sort of grew went away from that uh, I, I can't remember the last time anybody found an easter egg in apple software but google still does it famously all the time you know they had the mario driving around google maps on mario day do you know this mario day is uh, march 10th because it looks like mario that's Mar- terrible mar 10 it's like may the 4th all these sort of pun-based holidays are not Great. May the May the fourth at least I, I I cringe at it. I think it's a little corny, but at least you would say like when it is May fourth, you would say May the fourth, and it does sound like May the fourth be with you. It's it it works at a certain level where Mar ten equals Mario. Is yeah, it's, it's more of a stretch. A, kind of a stretch. I'm trying to think who else does Easter eggs. There's probably still Apple ones hidden in there. Like people can sneak stuff in, but it's uh, the, the thing is, there's so much more software now that uh, you know, so many more applications. The number of applications yeah. in the App Store dwarfs the number of applications ever made for classic macOS by probably yeah. orders of magnitude. So, if there are awesome Easter eggs out there, maybe we just don't even know about them. I feel, I feel like at, at various points in the early life of the Mac, I was at least aware of, if not had a copy of, every application available for the, for the computer, right? <laughs> Certainly all the popular ones, right? So you could, you could, it's like being in a small town where you know everybody, right? right? And then you know, like, these three have Easter eggs, and everybody eventually knows about the Easter eggs, and we share it. And with, like, with millions of apps in the App Store, that just doesn't happen anymore. There's not, there's not that uh, sort of... Uh, it's like television, you know, when we're all watching yeah. the same three networks and the same five shows, it's a lot easier to have a shared uh, understanding of the, the current state of play. But you added this. Here's a story you added to the show notes about Apple locking batteries to iPhones. Uh, Michael Sai has it on his website. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, this has been growing for a while. And, and I think that the gist of it now is that it's not that you can't use a non-authorized battery replacement. But if you put a non-authorized battery replacement into an iPhone, and presumably maybe iPads too, or if not, it might be coming, you get like a permanent warning in settings that tells you that the battery needs to be serviced, which would annoy the hell out of me to have something like that that I can't make Especially if it badge settings. I don't think it does badge settings, but imagine if it did. (laughs) That would drive me nuts. Yeah, so this is the type of thing where like, 
now it's it's a bunch of people experimenting. So this is it's not a rumor; it's a real thing that's happening. But it's unclear what the, the actual situation is. The situation could be that the logic in Apple's operating system that tries to validate the battery with the little chip that's in there, uh, you know, can, triggers this battery needs service thing. But really, it's erroneous because what it should just be detecting is that this it's not it's not the battery needs service. It's just that it's not matched up with the hardware, and that should be expressed in a different way. Or it could be that this is totally intended behavior and Apple's trying to stop people from putting in other batteries. But the, the effect of it may end up being the same. And this is this ongoing battle. Of like, uh, And the, it's, it's, you get it even if it is an authorized part. If It's just that if it, the yeah. service is performed by someone other than an authorized Apple itself or an authorized Apple repair technician, you, there, there's some kind of magic incantation that once you put the replacement part in, you you do some sort of diagnostic thing that says, okay, it's now it's authorized. Yeah. But I'm involving some sort of private key that only Apple has or something like that. Like the, the thing that uh, this is part of the larger right to repair issue of like, right. should Apple, it, should it be legal for Apple to stop people from start third parties from repairing them? And it reminds me a lot of the printer ink DRM mm -hmm. debacle of, of years past where printer manufacturers make all their money off this ink. And so they wanted to make it so that you couldn't use third party ink cartridges. So they put some sort of DRM in the ink cartridges and then tried to <laughs> sue the makers. It has of absolutely nothing about making your print print output look better or come out faster or have higher fidelity. Yeah. It was simply there for pure uh, uh, spite, marketing spite. To, yeah. And, uh, and but see, the thing is, their their story was similar to the Apple. They would say, well, we just want people to have. Make sure people have, you know, guaranteed, compatible, highest quality ink that we can control. Who knows what you're getting from those third party things that might not work right or it might work right with this version. But then we open our software and that ink doesn't work because they didn't realize they had to design it in this way to do account for some change in our printer. So really, it's the safest if you use our first like that's. It's exactly the same story of, uh, with the Apple batteries. Like, oh, well, third parties, you know, we want it to be installed by an authorized dealer. We want it to be a genuine part. And that's why we put this code in there and blah, blah, blah. And like, you can, again, within the company, I can imagine people convincing themselves that what they're doing is in the best interest of the customer. But in back in reality, it is not <laughs> in the best interest of the customer. Like, I feel like it was clearly established that it is better for people to be able to get cheaper printer ink. It's bad for a single company to have a monopoly on this because they raise the price and because there's no competition, right? And so it's bad if no one but Apple can successfully put an Apple battery back into an Apple phone. And right. there's always going to be cases where like, oh, some third party uh, badly installed a battery and it blew up and yeah. set a plane on fire and killed everyone on board. But that's just... That's part of what Apple has to deal with as a company in the world. And I honestly, it, it wouldn't be that big a deal because what Apple would say is, yeah, that's because a third party did it and they did a bad job, right? It would be yeah, good, I, actually good for Apple to be able to explain that. It would help people keep people away from it. But the, but the reality is that's, that doesn't happen. People just get cheaper batteries from third parties and everyone is better for it except for apparently Apple who just can't stand the idea of that happening. Yeah, and the other one, and I don't think that there's an issue with it at the moment, but I know that in that third party... Uh, repair scene for phones. The big one is repairing cracked displays uh, because their these displays are made of glass, glass, and people sometimes, unfortunately, drop their phone and then the glass shatters. And people have different. There's different amounts of shattering, <laughs> and people have different standards for what they'll put up with once they've done it. Uh, and you know, uh, I would probably go the authorized route. I've done it. In fact, that will. 
I think twice that I've dropped an iPhone. Um, but I totally respect that uh, some people, if they could do it for half price and it still looks like a nice display, it's, an, I guess, an Apple part. I mean, you can't really have a third-party display. They would like to save money on it. Uh, I get it. You know, I, I, I'm not a... a I'm I'm probably more on Apple's side on the right to repair stuff than a lot of people, a lot of nerds. Like a lot of nerds are really upset about all of this stuff. And I get it. Like you, your phone, you should be able to do whatever you want with it. Um but I know like the iFixit guys are really down on all the glue that Apple uses to put things together. I mean, I feel like that's a separate issue. Like the, the, the yeah. issue of how, of how repairable they are. Right. You can be militant about that or can you, you can not be militant about it. But it's it's the idea that if I'm physically able to do a repair or replacement, like if I'm right. able to do that with the tools and skills that I have, but then some kind of essentially DRM lockout prevents right. the device from working, from appearing to work correctly in the future for no actual good reason other than just like, Apple doesn't want this to happen. That's bad. Like we can't rely on Apple's benevolence to have reasonable repair prices and wait times. We we want there to be pressure. Like for years and years, be, you know, before the iPhone and you know there was uh, authorized Apple dealers before there were Apple stores. That's where you went to get Apple stuff done. That is a well-established system for Apple having some modicum of control because you, to be an authorized Apple dealer, the word authorized means Apple authorized you to do it. But I would go <laughs> beyond that and say it should be perfectly possible to have completely unauthorized repair centers for these things right? right as as long as you know they're the the backstops against all the safety and the danger things should be legal backstops that exist for consumer perception independent of any individual company like in other words liability for doing a bad phone repair and it blows up a battery we're like that's the legal system and our laws should protect us against that it's not like we're saying laissez-faire if you battery blows up tough luck like we're you know that's that's why we have laws but beyond that, Apple shouldn't have any say uh, in whether you are allowed to get your phone repaired differently. They can void your warranty because, again, that's an Apple right. thing. That's always right. been the deal. Fine. You get it repaired someplace else. It's not an authorized Apple deal. You void your warranty. Like, these are the trade-offs that need to be made. And it's not, it, you know, the slippery slope of, like, if you allow this, it will be madness. We lived in this world for years where there was authorized Apple dealers, no Apple stores, and also unauthorized Apple dealers. And nobody, you know, the world did not end. It is and a perfectly could- viable system. You could take these things apart, put them back together, and they just worked. Uh, it reminds me of a, a, a longstanding observation. You still have a TiVo? I have multiple TiVos. Uh, so we're still a TiVo family, and that's why uh, I think we've talked. you and I have talked about this on the show before. It's very hard to convey to somebody who doesn't own a TiVo how much better TiVo fast-forwarding and skipping around is and how you never ever have to wait for anything. It's always super fast. They've even added better features where certain shows now get indexed where you can just hit that. Do you have, do you have the green button D and it skips, it perfectly skips the commercials. But we, we, we first computerized television or video watching, if you will, to make it better and to do amazing things like time shifting without having to, (laughs) to, manage a bunch of vhs tapes and a a much easier pro, i mean it was uh, people forget it again we're going to lose the younger crowd but the blinking 12 on the vcr was a real thing that was a real thing where vcrs were so uh, 
so bad to use, had such a terrible user interface that people didn't even bother to set the clock. And if you don't have the clock set, you can't program anything, you know, in advance. You can't say, well, I'm going on vacation and I want to tape my favorite show on Tuesday night. Well, if the clock isn't set, good luck. You know, people didn't use it. TiVo revolutionized this. It made it, you had this nice little TV guide right on the screen and you'd say, that's the show I want. And then you'd get it. Um, and it was great. We used computers to make watching TV better. And now we use computers to make watching TV worse with unskippable Hulu ads. And like we went from using computers to be able to skip ads if you want to, to using computers to make it so that you cannot skip the ads. Yeah, well, in some respects, we also may use computers to make TV better still, as in let's forego the entire concept of a con continuous stream of shows that air at fixed times and then having a device deal with them. Streaming services, the shows just exist and you watch them when you want. So that's an improvement. But now that they have control over sort of the venue again, they're using that control to extract money in various ways. Although I have to say that for the most part, first of all, my TV usage, uh, t my TiVo usage has been decreasing as I have more and more shows are on streaming services. And second, I prefer the experience of using a completely commercial free streaming service that I pay for and can stream and download anytime that I want than the experience of TiVo in all ways except for the control factor. Because if I have to use it on TV OS, I'm using the terrible Apple remote. And if I'm using it on an iOS device, I find the playback interfaces, the sort of interface that, you know, yeah. on the screen that you use to play the show in all of my applications to be terrible. I want to sit down every single one of these developers and say, let me explain to you the things that people do when they're watching shows on their iPad and how terrible <laughs> your interface is at doing those things. <laughs> Like the ones that don't have like a go back 15 seconds or no. the, yeah, but that's, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, right? My, you know, I, I could start getting into those buttons. I could start getting into obscure stuff like the idea that if when I pause your video to like read the letter that someone is writing, if you dim the screen so much that I can't see the stuff anymore, why do you think I'm pausing it? Yes, I could be pausing right. it to go to the bathroom, but I could also be pausing it to pick something out of a frame. You have to give right. me a way to remove your HUD with a second tap, which many applications do, but many applications do not. You know, another thing people do all the time, they turn on the captions to tell what somebody said. The This right. one, Barry, that Apple got right, the, the what did he say, you know, Siri thing, which makes you feel silly, but at least the feature exists. Go back a little bit and turn on captions. If captions are four levels deep in a menu, that's not a good experience. Yeah. Just so many things. So many, And remembering playback position, I cannot express to you how important it is for you to remember my playback position, because if you do not, <laughs> it's infuriating. Like, you just got to get these basics right. And because there are so many applications, they all have an opportunity to screw up that interface in their own unique ways. Right. Imagine a a book that you couldn't bookmark. Yeah. Or it would, or make it you would try to, but then it would forget. Right. Yeah, and just dro drop you 70 pages prior or something yeah, like or, that. Or keep insisting after you finish the book that you are in the middle of chapter one. And every time you go back to the library, the book flies out of the shelf and hits you in the forehead and says, hey, you want to continue reading chapter one? And you're like, I finished that book. How can I convince you that I finished reading that book? Stop telling me to resume in the middle of chapter. Do I have to read it again to convince you, library, that I finished the book? That's I've had that experience with streaming services that like keep insisting that I resume watching a series that I had completely finished watching because some of their metadata about uh, what I've seen and what I haven't is messed up and I have no way to fix it. Do you see this thing that came out today where Apple released uh, a series of ASMR videos to YouTube? 
I did. And I fir- at first I thought that was like a third party, like someone just took a bunch of Apple videos and did some ASMR stuff. But then eventually right. after the 75th time I saw the link, I actually followed it and saw that it was literally an official Apple video. And I was a little bit surprised by that. But, you know, it's YouTube and they're trying different things. Um, what does ASMR stand for? I'm Googling it right now. Oh, I used to know this. Something sensory, something response. Yeah, something like that. Uh, autonomous sensory meridian response. I got two out of the four. Partial yeah. credit. Basically, it's uh, uh, satisfying noises. You know, like people crunch paper. It's just huge on. I guess everything's huge on YouTube. There's a niche for everything. But this is this but, is actually a pretty big thing. Like, the, and it's yeah. a little bit woo woo with the whole like. Uh, who gets what experience from watching these videos? But I feel like anybody, especially if you've never seen it before, will get some reaction from the experience. Perhaps a reaction that might surprise you because if you're like, it's just a video of people whispering and crumpling paper, I'm not going to find that remotely interesting. You may find it incredibly interesting and satisfying, or you may find it mildly more interesting than you thought you would. But I doubt anyone will look at an ASMR video for the very first time and say, I find this exactly as boring as I thought I would. Right. And it's, I don't know how they're recording the sounds because it's, and they're, you know, the Apple angle is that these are shot on iPhone and they are gorgeous videos. It's again, it's, it, I found it, I'm not really into the sound that much, but it was interesting. And the one where the woman was whispering, it was definitely, it, you really want headphones for that one. They all, they, every one of them opens with best, best heard on head with headphones on. Um, but I, I just like it cause it, it ups my, it makes me up my game or at least raise my raise my goals for what what I can shoot with my phone because I'm like, damn, this is <laughs> this looks like a real movie. My my iPhone movies still look like home videos, you know. I, you I feel get, like get yourself a gimbal or a tripod. Yeah, yeah. I that uh, seems like a lot of work. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, I had a whole bunch of stuff on the future of macOS, but we don't have time to get into that yeah, now. No, we don't have time on that. Uh, we, I, I, it, I know that you're very excited. The Mac Pro is coming. Um, what is, I, and I feel like this is to me, I, I talk to every guest about it every week, is what is your take on the, this 16-inch MacBook Pro? Is it a replacement for the 15 or not? I think it is at this point. I, think, I mean, even if the 15 hangs around, I think essentially this is the successor to that. Right. And eventually... In the same way that that models eventually fall off the end of Tim Cook's Apple, the 15-inch will be in the dustbin, and the 16-inch will be the new 15-inch. That is my current uh, expectation. Did you guys talk about the those weird rumors about people spotting the 16-inch? Uh, I didn't listen last night. Oh, no, no, we didn't. We, we we had that in the notes, and we discussed it amongst ourselves. I never actually made it into a show, but I yeah, I I'm, the joke I made about it, which uh, my two co-hosts didn't get because they don't remember this, is that. Uh, yeah, so what we're talking about is someone posted a a photo of a supposed prototype of the 16-inch uh, MacBook in like a, a public place, like a public cafe or a Starbucks like, or like something. A, yeah, not even like Cafe Max on campus, like at, at like a Cupertino area like lunch spot. Yeah. And, and it so just it, seems so bizarre. Like, well, who would do that? Well, so the joke I made about it was that, that I'd like that photo better if it was on the floor of an elevator. Uh, and it was, I was joking about <laughs> it, an old, an old from, the, from the, the early days of Mac rumors. The thing that happened a lot and became uh, 
a source of parody was because digital photography was in its infancy. Lots of the supposed spy photos of things were terrible quality, very grainy, low resolution, terrible lighting, because who had any kind of camera, let alone a digital camera, and what was the resolution and what was their light sensitivity? And that made it incredibly easy to make, quote unquote, convincing fake photos. Hmm. And so eventually it became like a joke that every time there was a supposed photo of something, it was like Bigfoot. Like, why are they never in focus? Like, <laughs> right. right. And so one of the, the famous ones was someone took a picture of this is the new iMac. And here it is a box on the floor of an elevator in a supposed convention center from a weird angle, incredibly grainy. Like if, if you actually had access to this thing and a camera no one would take just one terrible grainy photo and post that. And so when I saw this picture of this Mac and it's in the supposedly in the Starbucks or whatever, I'm like, this in the modern era, the the resolution and color fidelity and focus of this photo was awful. Like I was it taken on a, on an iPhone 3G? Like I don't understand what took this photograph. And most of the mystery and authenticity of the photo comes from the fact that it is so low quality that you can't tell right. if that was drawn by someone with a sharpie marker or whether it's an actual physical device um, yeah I, I guess the if if you want to you know give them the, the photographer the benefit of the doubt and 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 make the argument that it is a legit shot i guess Maybe it was somebody who was nervous about being – realized what they were shooting and that this person, however crazy they are to be using a prototype uh, off campus, certainly doesn't want to be photographed. And but so they but didn't. They're, they're in a public place, first of all. And second of all, we see creep shots of celebrities all the time. You're much more likely to be beat down by the bodyguard of a celebrity than some right. Apple nerd to yell at you. When you're in a public place. You can take a picture of them at their table. I know you don't want to be creepy, but the point is – if you took the creepiest of creep shot under your arm with your iPhone, it would be a hundred times better than the quality of that photo. I don't understand why the photo is so bad and why there's only one of them. Right. Well, the other crazy thing about it is that, and I just find this so hard to believe, but it would kind of be cool. It would kind of warm my heart. But the fact that the, this rumor is that the Apple logo on the back of the display is the, uh, the six color Apple logo. Yeah, that's that's a separate rumor, and this that's why this this photo, like when I look at yeah, the photo, it, I just, doesn't show the apple, yeah. but no, it does. It does show. Oh, the, it does. The, it does the rainbow. Show the yeah, the, the the that's the reason I I I made the elevator joke is because this is exactly how in the old days you would make a right. convince a quote unquote convincing fake. You'd because make the, it grainy, you'd make it plausible, and you'd incorporate some other rumor. So you're like, there has been a rumor going around that Apple's going to bring back the six color Apple logo, which I certainly right. hope they do because I love that logo and I think it is plausible rumor. Incorporate that into your fake. By getting someone to take a, take a, uh, a gray Dell, shove an Apple sticker on it, and then take a, an off-kilter, low-resolution, poorly lit, out-of-focus photo of it, and then post that one photo online and say, here it is. I caught the 16-inch MacBook Pro in real life. And here's the thing. If the MacBook Pro comes out and it is gray and has an Apple logo on the back of it, that doesn't mean that photo is real. Right. <laughs> it just means that they successfully made a reasonable fake. God, like, I used to be frustrated when I was younger that people were so bad at producing leaks but eventually people got good at it like when we see the parts leaks for the iphones now they're good there's like 15 photos they're in focus they're high resolution and they are legit and when the real phone comes out we can compare them side by side and say yep those were the parts of the phone yeah or the cases right like the cases sometimes leak and it's like yep that was a perfect that was a perfect cutout for down to the uh, millimeter because they give those specs to the case makers before the phones come out 
Uh, I think they do with some select partners, but there's a huge racket, uh, like the lesser case makers that don't necessarily have Apple's trust bribe the employees at the factory yeah. to, to get the schematics. Yep. Um, <laughs> well, the rumor sites used to be so much worse, too. They were, they were so bad in the old days. It was I, always... I wish this would be a good, like, you know, secret history book, secret history of people who, who I mean, I guess they couldn't do it as a profession, but as a pretty extensive hobby, would just submit fake stuff to Apple rumor sites, right? Right. <laughs> they just make up something, they'd make up code names. The more ambitious ones would do like 3D renders or make up grainy photos. Or like the 3D renders were not intended to be real. Like, here's a, 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 an artist rendition of what this thing actually looks like. They would just make up stuff from whole cloth and the sites would post it and we would read it. And it was, it was a fun pastime, but that, that seems to have fallen by the wayside. And now we, now we mostly get real rumors from supposed reputable uh, publications like Bloomberg or whatever. Right. Reading the rumor sites like in the late 90s, maybe early or very early 2000s was a lot like reading a supermarket tabloid. Yeah. Like I, I did it and I was interested, but I pretty much went through like a whole week of posts and be like, that's bullshit, bullshit. Nope. But nope. like people who Made read up. tabloids, you'd also kind of get excited sometimes. Like, but what if this one is real? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it was like the more ridiculous they were, the more you'd like hold that because the good ones would incorporate all like all the little kernels of truth that are out there mix them all together and then you know put a unicorn on it right and so it was like all our hopes and dreams with just enough plausibility to uh to, to make us consider it at all um i know you're eyeballing a mac pro later in the year probably what are your current thoughts on a display it seems to me like, like with this news a week or two ago that that lg's whatever it's called display is not in fact dead it was only getting like a minor refresh suggests to me like my my take on it is that this makes this makes me feel less certain about apple coming out with a lower priced pro display i mostly agree with that except i mean like so look apple doesn't control what lg does if lg wants to make a five gate display that's fine it really all depends on exactly how much apple starts pushing it in its venues how much does it push it in its stores in its advertising on its website that i think is a stronger sign of whether apple's going to make a reasonably priced display than the fact that lg is continuing to make the display but all that said speaking of stress dreams i continue to have stress dreams about the monitor both waking and sleeping like you know i don't it's i don't need that display but if I had that display, I think I would really enjoy it. But it's really expensive, and I just go back and forth and back and forth. And then I think, like, could I buy this computer but then put something, put a non-Apple display on it? Like, that's the whole reason I was flipping out when Apple stopped making displays is that I couldn't stomach right. that idea. And it's it, it, there's a, an industrial design mismatch there. And even if you're going to put your Mac Pro under your desk and so it's not right next to this display, it, it, it you know. It's not a bad-looking display. It's very plain. It's kind of bad. It doesn't have the the bigger forehead. Like, it's not even a symmetrical. Yeah, Yeah, it's not symmetrical. Mm. Uh, It's a nice panel, but I just couldn't help but think that when they announced the price of the Pro Display XDR and literally caused gasps in the room, uh, I I just – my thought immediately went to, well, why, why not just Apple Pro Display? Why say XDR unless they were going to make a pro display that's not XDR? And the XDR stuff is the stuff that you know non-film editors 
don't really need. You don't really need a thousand nits, right? You'd probably burn your eyes out if you're just uh, coding or something like that. You don't need the, the super high dynamic range. You just need regular dynamic range, high dynamic range. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Purchase wise, I don't know what I'm going to do. It is a no brainer to me that Apple absolutely should make an, an iMac without the iMac. Uh, right. But, right. But I don't. I don't. I don't understand what the whole like. Is this another instance where like they they do all the, the Mrs. Mac roundtable and get the Pro Workflow Group and talk to all these people and like no one during that entire sequence said. <laughs> what yeah, about but a, Are you going to have about, like a regular monitor? What about a display in the you know. $1,500 range. Again, I like spending so long in corporate America, I continue to be, uh, you know, as sure as I could be about anything. Like within Apple, they are able, able to convince themselves of things that seem preposterous to us on the outside. Like they, no matter how much outward reaching you do and no how many roundtables you have, no matter how much, you know, sort of talking with your customers, that somehow internally – they're able to decide that this is not a product that we need or we don't need it this year or we don't need to say anything about it. And it's just such an obvious gap. <laughs> Our only standalone Apple display is $6,000. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like the, and the, you And you really want the $7,000 one. Yeah, yeah and, and here's the thing. Like, this is it's sort of uh, the communication gap is like back back at that roundtable thing that you went to where they, where they were like, we're, we're going to make a Mac Pro. We, we screwed up. Here's what we're going to do. We're recommitting to the Mac. They so triumphantly said, and also... We're going to make a display. Yeah, right and, right. and there was much rejoicing, and everyone was happy. And I feel like there is a the disconnect is not about the happiness because Apple's like, we think we think people want a display too. We should say that. We should do that. And you and they said it, and everybody liked it, and everyone's happy. Apple's smiling because we're smiling. They said they're going to do a thing. We say we love the thing. Like we're all one big happy family. But 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 we're not happy about the same thing because Apple's like. Let's make that seven thousand dollar display now, and we're all expecting like you can make a seven dollar display. That's awesome. Like I think that's a great thing for you to make, but you can have a regular one too, right? right. And they, they, like, and now they they come out like, huh? Here's the thing, and then we're, we're all grumpy. Like, but we were all happy. weren't we all happy about the display? It's like yes, but we weren't thinking of the same thing. Like, we need to. There needs to be closer communication. Just just you know, when you say you're going to make a display, that's the problem with all the secrecy. When you say you're making a display, you're not going to make a. $7,000 reference monitor competitor are you like it wouldn't even occur to us to ask that and they're not going to tell you what they're going to make either they just want to roll it out and just be all smiles and wait for the plaudits to roll in and it's like no no you blew it like you like you can have that if and again I think if they had that display and also an iMac without the iMac we would the, the story would be as positive as Apple wanted it to be so we would be yeah. like I'm going to get this awesome new Mac Pro with this monitor, and imagine if I had that even cooler monitor. It would be all we, everybody would love it, right? But yep. because they didn't, and because we all didn't find out about this miscommunication until it's you know whatever the, well Henry thing, like until we opened the gifts and we're like, right. uh, no. Yeah, yeah. So I I really I really <laughs> hope they fix this eventually. There's there's the you know. Uh, People who don't like Apple products, nerds who don't like Apple products, would you know the the long-standing decades, you know, as far back as I can remember, even before there was the internet, uh, the rap that we get is that we're brainwashed, right? We're we're what what else? Cultists. They you know the cult of Mac or whatever. Um, I have to like the number of people who are saying, just let us use an iMac as a standalone display and I'll just 
I'll just ignore the, the very nice computer that's inside is sort of right up that, you know, I have to admit that because it's crazy, but people really are, you know, I, I can't tell you whenever I tweet about this and stuff like that, how many people say, I just wish that I could plug my MacBook Pro into an iMac and that would be fine with yeah. me. Part, part of that is bargaining. Because they're right. like, okay, you won't do the thing that I want, but how about this thing that you sort of did once? Bring that back, right? But then part right. of it is also the actual convenience angle of like, look, I literally do have an iMac that I use, but sometimes I sit down in front of it with my laptop. It would be cool to have a quick little docking thing, right? So there's there's two halves of that, right? right. But but like, <laughs> but it, may, it makes no sense because clearly they should be able to make a 5K display for less than an iMac. But they should just it, sell just sell it for the same price as the iMac. Like right. that's just just like it's all profit. Like just right. do not reduce the price. Make it cost more than the base iMac. Like people would buy that. That's how I desperate. Don't. And that, that's that's where I think the disconnect is that Apple thought. That we were all happy, like we were sad when they didn't make monitors, and we're happy when they said they would. And Apple's like, they want us to make a monitor because only Apple can make this amazing breakthrough monitor. And the real answer, I feel like, is we want Apple to make a monitor so it matches our computer and is really nice. Like, like that, and the base level. We also think it's cool if they can make an awesome monitor, right? right? But at the base level, in the same way, the same reason we want them to make Wi-Fi routers and USB hubs is that it's hard to find nice high quality stuff that you know works with your system that's part of the beauty of buying apple stuff is like i know it will be nice it will look nice it will be high quality i know it will work with the mac because it's made by the same company it'll it'll turn on with a button you know when i want it to turn on it'll have have nice integrations that don't like and yeah it'll be more expensive and that is the bargain we have struck but apple i guess interpreted the demand for and happiness with the announcement of a monitor to be they want us to make a breakthrough. And I don't want to say we didn't want, we do want them to make breakthroughs, but you right. also just had to make a decent monitor. And the other weird thing about it is, is in the, in the post switch to Intel world, we, we as Mac users gained access to a lot of peripherals and, and things, you know, because the Mac is, is effectively just a very specific Intel PC. You know, we 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 can literally boot Windows if we if we choose to. Um, but the display world has bifurcated in such a weird way. Like we don't have there just are no options for a nice iMac caliber 5K display out there. And most PC users who are like, especially gamers, don't want retina displays. They want bigger pixels because they want to drive them at a high frame rate. Uh, and so it's just very, very strange. Like we don't have an option to go. We, there's one one 5K display we can choose. It's from LG, and it's kind of it's kind of flaky and it's ugly. Yeah, and it's, it's kind it's of not well integrated. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing is, like, I I understand where they're coming from, and I still hold out hope that like the the strategy is announce the Mac Pro and the and the top end display, and it's one big cohesive story for super duper right. pros, and then then backfill later. But yeah. with Apple secrecy being the way it is, and in the current sort of in-between stage we are, where you can't actually order a Mac Pro yet, uh, it, you know, and with the LG thing coming out, it's, they've reintroduced uncertainty, where I feel like they they didn't have to, it, and and maybe, yeah. or maybe like they like. I don't know what kind of financial sense any of this makes because they're going to sell so few Mac Pros and they're going to sell so few of these displays and they would sell so few of the display that we were speculating about. But like, as the argument for the Mac Pro has never been this is an awesome business for Apple to be in. It's it, the argument, and my argument has always been it's, it's a business that Apple has to be in, even if it's not particularly profitable, because to not be in it is to sort of 
uh, you know, uh, consign yourself to a, a right. narrow band of the market where you right. miss out on all sorts of uh, benefits. Yeah. Like it's, so it's anyway, good to be that, high end. that is my hope. My hope is that they call this one the XDR because there's also a pro display. I don't know if it would be 6K. I would be happy with 5K, uh, like the iMac panel, but a nice Apple branded pro display with all sorts of nice features. And it just, it, I can't help but think that it's possible that they were like, well, let's hold something back so that when we announce this for sale in October, that we'll have have something new to announce in addition to what we already pre-announced at WWDC. That's a terrible strategy, though, because they like (laughs) once they saw what the reaction was, they should have said, oh, we wanted to surprise you later. And instead, we are signing you up for multiple months of being disappointed. And that's really when there's multiple months of disappointment. If they had something to stop the disappointment, I think we would already know about it. So I hope I hope they're scrambling to produce something like this, but given their timelines, I don't expect it anytime soon. A thousand dollar arm. <laughs> yeah, they're not even getting into the stand. Just just talking about the monitor itself. Uh, John, it was good to have you back on the show. Let's not make it a year and a half again. I'll, I'll invite you. You don't have to invite yourself. I'll invite you back. Uh, at the very least, it, we have a Star Wars movie coming up this year, right? We could do uh, we could do a Star Wars spectacular. Sure, in a yeah, months. no, those, those don't those don't count actually. So actually, yeah, ah. you got to have me on for for the tech topics. But the Star Wars, yeah. I'm always game for for sure. Uh, yeah, it's always good talking to you. I enjoy your show. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, my thanks to our sponsors this week. We had uh, Squarespace, where you can go to build websites. Eero, where you can set up a mesh network Wi-Fi in your house. And away travel where you can get yourself an excellent suitcase. Uh, my thanks to you for being here, John. It was great.